Welcome to the RAB Poetry Podcast, where we bring you the stories behind the words, where every poem has a story behind it. Our podcast is a journey through the hearts and minds of poets as we delve into the inspirations, struggles, and triumphs that fuel their work. In each episode, we'll feature a poem, sharing the underlying stories and reciting the most powerful and moving pieces. From various poems on wide variety of topics and rising poets and authors, our podcast is the perfect companion for anyone who loves poetry and the power of words. Whether you're a seasoned poetry enthusiast or just getting started, you'll find something to love on the RAB Poetry Podcast. So tune in and let the stories of our poets take you on a journey of inspiration and emotion. Listen to the REB Poetry Podcast, available on all major platforms now. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Fandom Power. My name is Wes, and if you can't tell, I sound like death, <laughs> because that's how I've been feeling for the last five days. As I just said before to the guys off camera, I wrote my notes this week in a bit of a fever dream, so I might say some weird things that I don't intend to. That's okay. I may break out into a bout of coughing uncontrollably. Who knows? Uh, once again, joined by these guys, um, who no local co-hosts tonight. Andy, I'm flying solo, buddy. Yep, situation dictates it. So, better stay there. Has, sorry. Well, I mean, funny that um, there's illness running through both of our homes at the same time, and yet we haven't seen each other in like a, over a week. <laughs> <laughs> How conveniently inconvenient. Yep. Um, but hey, Hank, you're with us. It's a Monday night, not a usual Sunday night stream. Monday night. Thank you for joining us. I know that your work schedule often dictates um, how things work for us. So I am super happy to uh, be able to do this tonight as uh, we only have a couple nights left here before we uh, rock on with uh, episode five. Um <clears throat> I know I said it before. I just want to, you know, revisit a couple little things because I just like to say these things. I always just like to start with a little. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here. I mean it. If you guys are listening or uh, watching and this is your first time, we know that your entertainment options are, uh, there's a lot out there. So the fact that you've chosen us to hang out with for the next, oh, I don't know, however long it takes us to get through this, that really says a lot to us. Also, by now, at this point, you've you've probably heard it all from uh, everybody. Uh, I've always said we'll never be first. Um, that's I'm not interested in being first. I am interested in being thorough. So you may think you've heard everything, but you know what? I bet if you if you stick with us, you may hear some things that you've never heard that before. You missed. I like to say that our our show it plays like an annotated audiobook, and uh, the annotations are provided by us truly. And uh, yeah, um, just like our previous Star Wars review series, that the breakdown that we do it's beat for beat, it's note for note. We will cover all the plot points, all of the Easter eggs, and by the way. <laughs> episode four is a smorgasbord treasure trove of of easter eggs but we'll don't call that. it fan service <laughs> or do call it fan service <laughs> and of course any of the greater star wars lore connections that we discover throughout the course of the episode uh before we get to the breakdown though a uh, little thing that i like to start with and that's what i like to call our our first impressions 
we'll do a round robin of first impressions guys what is our first impression of uh, episode four aldani thank you want to go much first much better oh andy go take it okay uh for me way better than the first three not to hate on anything the director of the first three did but this one just it had me and it kept me right hi guys how's the world well, we were just breaking down. We were going through our first impressions before we get to the breakdown. Um, I, now's the perfect time. Uh, first impressions, Hank, what do you think of episode four, Aldani? Okay. Um, remember, I think I said this in the chat too, and I, it's the sentiment I can't sort of say enough about this episode is yeah. that um, it was like a lot of meh. And I was thinking maybe this might even be the worst Star Wars show yet. <laughs> okay. And now... I don't know. There's some things in this that made me go, holy cow. Um, maybe, maybe things that even put it up there as one of the best. Uh, yeah. It definitely put some hooks in you. The whole idea that uh, there's no fan service, I guess, depending on your definition of fan service, is just yep. out with the baby in the bathwater in this episode. <laughs> um, and I it's not, that's you. not why I like it. There's it, This one raises an interesting question. I just sort of never really thought about before and we'll get to that when it happens but it, it it opens up a whole world for me and it it actually changes how i look at the first three movies the original trilogy oh that's that's high praise actually i will say this i want to contrast this up against the first episode and i and i'm gonna go i want to say i consider the first three episodes to be the first episode of sure part, because sure. they just there was so much world building and exposition that we needed to get so that we could launch on our adventure mm -hmm. if those first three episodes which i also call the the prologue if they were thematically establishing the shades of gray within the star wars universe which they did in spades i would say that there is a thematic shift this episode I really dug down on this whole theme of of ambition. There's there is personal ambition uh, with every character that we meet that's introduced in this episode, and it shines through in different ways. I still think that it it uh, keeps the show grounded. Um, it's definitely the most grounded Star Wars that that I think we've had. And I'll say since Rogue One. Yeah. But yeah, that's where I'm at. Um, lots of ambitions in this episode, which we'll talk about when uh, when it comes up, because I do want to talk. But they're not all about they're not all evil intent, though, right? No, no. But There's I mean, a again, gray like area with a lot of them. This is it building on that whole shades of gray and people just going about their jobs like frontline worker at mcdonald's might not be you know so ambitious to want to be the store manager but the store manager might be ambitious enough to want to be the district manager do you know what i mean like and we see yeah, that right. in this episode i definitely right, well, like a lot of the uh the world building stuff like you know we've talked about watching a show about politics and there's that element oh, but yeah. then we also get like the daily airport I so. so again, I love all of that stuff. I yeah. love all of the mundane, the everyday, the the just the ho hum. Everybody going about their life. Actually, I've got a slide about this. Just there, there's a little little detail. I don't know if you guys noticed when Karn goes home. Yeah, 
I don't want to spoil it right now, but we'll talk about it. How immersive the 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 people who are involved how immersed they want us to be did you notice that when he goes to dial in the number on the elevator he's pulled his sleeve over his hand so he doesn't physically have to touch the buttons with his finger (laughs) how many times have you gotten on a public elevator or gotten gone anywhere public and you've done that because you didn't want to touch the doorknob or you didn't want to touch the thing so you covered your hand with the with the coat sleeve Sure. Knowing yeah, full well, to, but, uh, knowing full well that it doesn't, it doesn't fucking matter. But you do it anyway because it right. makes you feel better. Sure. And Karn does that. Cyril Karn, he does that when he's going home to his mother's place. He covers his hand with his coat sleeve, which I thought was like just an amazing, such a small little detail, but such an amazing way to help again bring you in and 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 show us that this these are real people living yeah. real lives. I actually hope that we. Uh, there's some aliens that we get to meet that uh, have the same level of uh, mundaneness. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't want it to be too human a story. If, if that tracks. gotcha, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I get, I get you. I like it because because it, it is very human. But I like, I guess what I'm saying is like the the, the humanity. Uh, yep. Taken as a different definition of like being human. Like I, I, I hope that level of humanity extends to all the characters that we get introduced to. yeah i hear you all right guys well let's get into it and we'll uh we'll we'll talk more as things come up but we'll get going on this one it's uh, episode four this one is uh sorry it is episode four that's correct it's aldani this one uh, debuted on wednesday september 28th it's written by dan gilroy and it's directed by Susanna white by the way she's a fantastic director mm. This is our longest episode yet. It has a uh, listed runtime of 50, five zero minutes, um, which from my perspective as the uh, as the person putting the show together scares the bejesus out of me because that's yeah. an awful lot of hours behind the computer. But um, if you trim the titles and the end credits off, you're still looking at a full 41 minutes. Now, Dan Gilroy is yeah, the younger like- brother of our uh, show creator, Tony Gilroy. And Dan is also responsible for writing the screenplay for, uh, you guys remember Free Jack? Free Jack yes. with uh, Emilio Estevez and uh, um, Mick Jagger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember that one. He also wrote the story for uh, Real Steel, the robot boxing movie, nice. as well as our screenplay for uh, Kong Skull Island. Susanna White, on the other hand, now what's she done? She did four episodes of uh, Jane Eyre as well as uh, four episodes. Uh, you guys remember Generation Kill, the HBO series? As well mm-hmm. as the uh, as well as Nanny McPhee Returns. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Our episode opens, and we have uh, Luthen's ship streaking away from Ferrix. Seated behind the controls, Luthen directs Cassian to a med pack stored in a berth just behind the cockpit. Telling Cassian to hold on, Luthen turns his attention to the ship's droid mod, and he orders it to calculate the jump to Aldani. Now, in what I can only describe as the fastest lightspeed calculation in Star Wars history, mm. the ship jumps into hyperspace uh, after, what, uh, five seconds of real time? Yeah, right. Not prepared for the sudden acceleration, Cassian stumbles back into the padded bulkhead with a look of dismay. Granted, Cassian Andor, because we've never seen that either. He asks Luthen what's powering the ship, saying that uh, he's flown Fondor Hallcraft before, 
and he's never seen one do what has just happened. Yeah. Luthen answers uh, by telling him, well, it's been a day of surprises for both of us. Luthen exits the cockpit and Cassian asks him, what's Aldani? Luthen, just as vague as he was on Ferrix, tells him that depends. Um, you want to talk about the uh, the light speed thing? Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I it ties in with the whole what what's powering this ship, I guess, because I think that's, well, that's the big. That's what I was getting at. Like, is, is he saying? Clearly, I I would think Cassian's been at light speed before, so it's not that yeah, that's, that's not a. I think it's the speed with which he jumps to light speed. Yeah. That is, that's what the remark is. I think he hit the nail on the head. I mean, we've seen uh, arguably the most cracked navigation system in Star Wars on the Millennium Falcon take longer to calculate a jump. Yeah, there's always a bigger fish. <laughs> it's always a better droid, I guess. I guess so. All right, we'll come back to that whole power thing in a few minutes because that's going to be a major plot point. Aldani, it's a new planet uh, being introduced here in uh, Andor. We've not been to Aldani before, so that's a, a new one for, for the show. Cassian says that uh, he hasn't agreed to do anything at this point except to save his own skin. Well, shrewdly, Luthen remarks, and yeah, here you are with your skin. <laughs> Luthen offers Cassian a flask of what he calls Mednog, mm-hmm. telling him uh, just a sip, and Cassian accepts with a uh, suspicious look. Mednog, that's two different kinds of nog in uh, just a couple episodes. Yeah, do we think that's pre-Vacta kind of tech? I don't know. I mean, I kind of wonder if it's just like a, I don't know. I mean, uh, to me, it's, you know, it's up there with the techno babble that we get later. By the way, the most techno babble I think I've ever heard in Star Wars is in this episode. Like, (laughs) and when I say techno babble, I mean, in the Star Trek sense, if we make it sound sciencey, then people will believe it. I could not believe how much techno babble is in this episode. But it's kind of that fantas- fantastical. Uh, what there was another uh, outlet they kind of, kind of referred to it as like uh, it's a healing potion, <laughs> right? 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 <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if that helps your brain, you know, plus, digest plus what it is, sure, <laughs> it's a healing potion. I guess so. While handing back the flask, uh, Cassian pulls out a karambit-style knife from his boot and he sets it on a on the shelf with the med pack. And uh, he begins to wrap his arm with a clean dressing. Luthen tells Cassian that the way he sees it, he can either drop him off somewhere where he can start running from the Primor Authority, and by extension of that, the Empire, or he can stay with Luthen and help with something important. Or he could try killing Luthen outright and stealing the ship. Mm-hmm. Scoffing at the remark, Cassian uses his karambit to cut a length of gauze at the same time, uh, he retorts, define important. And Luthen casually responds with taking something of real value from the Empire. Cass- Cassian scoffs again as he snidely remarks, I don't need you to steal. But Luthen waves a hand at him and sarcastically says, seeing how, how well you're doing on your own. <laughs> with his mind made up, Cassian elects to take the drop off. And Luthen questions him with, uh, and do what? Continue as you are? Telling him plainly that the Empire would hang him with this same rope for a plasma coil as they would for 20 million credits. But he's offering him everything he wants all at once. 
Now, isn't that an interesting choice of words? They would hang you with the same rope for a plasma coil as they would for 20 million credits. Do we think that's why his dad was hanged? So I went the other way. Do we think he actually told them how much money they're about to steal? Oh. In a roundabout way. I think... I thought he was referring to... Because he mentioned the hanging... Yeah, the hanging in the square. Mm. And I thought maybe that's another way of showing how much he knows. I I think it's... There's uh, a subtlety there that I think is... I think that's true. Yeah. I think that is true. So, yeah. They were hanging (coughs) with the same rope that they hung his father with. Excuse me. I just thought, you know, the 20 million credit thing, it could just be a throwaway line or it could be like, he's letting him in on the plan like now, even though he doesn't know that that's what it is exactly. Yeah. And I I read somewhere this week, uh, three planets per sector. And they're talking about, you know, a quarter of a quarter of the galaxy. I think the payroll might be. What did you say? It was a, a whole sector's worth of payroll. Yeah, sector. So three planets. So twenty yeah. million might be short. <laughs> there is that that possibility I mean, too. Maybe they're not well paid. <laughs> it, yeah. Well, the, there is that. I do like that. You know, something that seems like it could be a throwaway line has this nuance to it that could be a, there. There's a couple of inferred meanings that could be floated around about it. Mm. With a snide, nothing no, nothing by accident. I agree. With a snide look, Cassian sarcastically retorts, and what is everything I want, seeing as you know so much about me? With a steel jaw, Luthen sneers to put a real stick in the eye of the Empire and get paid for it. Nodding, Cassian says that he wondered who Luthen was, running through a short list of Alliance, Separatist, Guerrilla, Partisan Front, adding that it doesn't matter because they're all about the same thing in his eyes. And at that, Luthen says, so we agree. Cassian shakes his head no, because he thinks it's all useless. Luthen tries to appeal to him, saying that it's better to spit in their food and steal their trinkets. But Cassian cuts him off with, no, it's better to live, to eat and sleep and do whatever you want. Well, this next sequence is pretty nuanced and complex, so we're going to have to, uh, we'll end up unpacking a bit of this here in a minute. Taking control of the conversation, Cassian says to Luthen, you don't know me, adding that he fought for two years on Mimben when he was just 16 years old, adding that he was pressed into service after being released from prison, and now he's just one of 50 people from his unit that has survived. We all remember Mimben in the uh, the canonical sense, introduced to us back in uh, Solo, a Star Wars story. This is the planet that uh, Han Solo fought on as an Imperial uh mud trooper yeah we are right in that that uh same time frame that there's every chance that they were in the same division or at least they were at the same battle at the same time yeah absolutely scoffing again he says and uh, who did it turn out that we were fighting ourselves and so that's kind of where i get a little bit like that whole line about and i've been i've been in this fight since i was six years old okay so like we don't know about what he was doing at six years old but we do know that at age 16 he was pressed into service for the empire right having gotten out of prison if that part of the story is true right um because he's he's 
you know, he does stretch the truth a little. Uh, of course as, he does. He's got a revealed in the second, but he um, wants to control his own narrative. Of course. But, he does. Uh, no, absolutely. And so, um, yeah, I mean, as interesting as pressed into service at 16 is, it's mm -hmm. equally as interesting to me as Imperial prison at 15. Mm, that's a good one too. You know, like, like he, <laughs> so if we put him at 12, okay. When he's when he gotten off, up. right? She's yeah. got Marva's got him doing jobs. Let me let me let me ask this: Does it change your your thought if if we change the fact if we say that well he wasn't in an imperial prison he was actually in a republic prison when the war ended and now automatically it becomes an imperial facility and now you're fighting for us. Yeah, I mean that's very interesting. Uh, absolutely. Um, it, and it all goes back to if, if we can put a pin exactly in, well, and that's uh, just it. when Marva sort of wet, like how old he is and was, Yeah, they might leave that vague enough for us. But if we can put a pin in that sort of star date, if you will. Oh, I know. I um, definitely want more on that because uh, it, it begs the question for me when he <laughs> says we were fighting ourselves yeah. on a superficial level, it begs the question, what does the average citizen know about, uh, about uh, the Republic and the separatists and the their upper echelon and the workings of, by the way, yeah. these entities were controlled ultimately by the same person. So you and I got like, how much does he really know? You and I got into this in the chat almost in real time. Uh, yeah, Andy hadn't seen the episode yet. And so who who they were fighting the Empire on Mimban? They were yeah. fighting the yeah. Mimbanese Liberation Army. The Liberation Army, yeah. Right. And then we go and we do a little research and we get trained, we to, armed and trained by the Republic, by the Republic. OK, <laughs> this is a separatist world. That's right. Yeah. Right. A separatist led world. And uh, and and we so we have the, you know, like how many times we talked about how many times does like human history sort of like, you know, like the 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 Santanistas, the uh, yeah, the the, uh, the the Iranians in in the eighties with you know how many times has the you know the global police force put a put a, a sympathetic leader in yep only to create yep. A, yep. A, a a crazed faction and so that you it's it makes the galaxy so world like yeah so like yeah, and yeah. It, and then you think okay so. If Marva's, you know, anti-separatist, it could just be this personal view that she's put on, on Cassian. They they all have a relationship with droids too. Is sort of indicative of a relationship with the separatists. But yes, you know, absolutely. There's no, uh, you know, the droids were the enemy to the Republic. Right. So, and I think you you we hit the nail on the head there with like a Republic trained militia is yep. now fighting the Empire. Like. It, it should that should not be lost on anybody how no you know. when you realize that the uh that battle uh the battle of mimban actually uh if my math is right that campaign lasted for 12 years right right those people fought tooth and nail uh and for for scraps and mud right looking and, at the uh, history of mimban they were initially invaded by the cis so by the separatists in 22 BBY for what is defined as rich hyperbaride depo uh, deposits. Right. Hyperbaride being a rare heavy element used in the construction of uh, naval turbo lasers. Mm -hmm. 
then the Republic armed and trained the the native Mimbin Liberation Army with the promise of freedom at the end of the war. Right. And then overnight, overnight, it ends, and the Republic is now suddenly the Empire, and now the need for hyperbaride to fuel the new Imperial war machine is bigger than ever. So this promise of freedom never ends up coming and it's this huge betrayal it opens up this line of thought too like everything we have in star wars absolutely everything is painted through the lens of of everything is pro-republic the republic are the good guys yes the jedi were the guardians of peace and justice and peace and justice Yeah, yeah right like but what did uh that's a third of the galaxy what did the other two thirds of the galaxy think? Well, we know that a third of them thought completely separate, literally separatists. Right. Yep. And then you start you start to think, okay, the independent the coalition of systems led by Satine and the Mandalorians Satine, yep. may have been on the rightest track of all of them, trying to don't say, get involved, don't get involved, sort of yep. like you know, yep. try to rise above it and and at the same time pursue peace and justice, literally. Like makes her tragedy you know, all the more, you know, less tragic, really. Yeah, 100%. And and that's a random line about the Battle of Mimbon, isn't that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. we just did what uh, that's six, why, seven minutes, yeah. <laughs> that's the first thing in this episode that made me go, Oh, wow, yeah. that's a but it's a huge deal. Swear it is a it is lit, it is a huge deal. Um, and to finish what I was saying before, you know. That that battle goes on for 12 years. I mean, so like if, if the battle begins during the Clone War and it doesn't end until the early days of the Galactic Civil War, well, to the guy, the boots on the ground, it is the same thing. Right. Those clones yeah. just switched helmets. That's right. Right. That's right. Or, or they didn't, as some of the trailers would suggest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hyperbarides, by the way, just a superficial point. Uh, first introduced to us in the uh, role-playing game supplement, uh, Planet of the Mists, back in uh, 1992. Okay, so if you recall back in episode three, Luthen told Cassian that he knew who he was. And uh, so now, leaning on the bulkhead of the cockpit, he plays another card from his hand. <laughs> Correcting Cassian, Luthen says that he was only on Memban for six months, and he served as a cook. And the only reason he lived is because he ran. But he tells Cassian that he was right about one thing, that the Empire really did have them fighting each other, and that should make him hate them even more, adding, and you do. Luthen reiterates that he knows Cassian. He says, I know what people tell me, and I imagine the rest. Like how much hate Cassian has for the Empire. Luthen adds that no matter what Cassian tells himself, uh, he knows that Cassian will ultimately die fighting what he calls these bastards. Then Luthen lays it on the line and asks, wouldn't you rather give it all at once for something real rather than carve off useless pieces until there's nothing left? Further revealing that uh, he didn't risk himself for the Starpath unit. He, in fact, came for Cassian. I talked uh, back in the in the prologue about how much I thought Bix had talked up Cassian prior prior to now. Mm-hmm. But this whole interaction between Cassian and Luthen really begs the question about how much research did Luthen do on his own to know who Cassian is? Oh, sure. Probably a lot. 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure he did. Well, he's certainly, and we're going to find out, he's certainly somebody. He's not, you know, like. Well, that's another thing. Just, I'm, I'm going to, hmm, yes, the, he's the a depth, somebody. Yeah, the depth at which the connections go is crazy deep. Uh, I do believe we're going to find out why he landed in Imperial Prison, though. Oh, before okay. we're all said and done here. All right. And we're going to find it's probably connected to Clem. Okay. Nice. So perhaps between that age of 12 and say 14, right, he starts right. doing jobs with Marva and Clem, but him and Clem get busted at some point. That makes sense Clem to me. To get hung. We don't know. Prison yeah. because he's still young enough to switch, right? We don't know at what age that Clem gets hung, but we kind of speculated no. from the marketing and the other trailers that that sequence with the clones in town, that looks like Ferrix yeah. to me. Because, like, if yeah, that is legit, there's another yeah. reason to hate the Empire because they took oh, away his surrogate yeah. father, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the look on Cassian's face is as if his soul has just been bared. And uh, with a sigh, he squares himself to Luthen asking, what's the offer? Luthen tells him that he needs five days. It's a high-stakes operation with real danger. But there is a well-prepared team with a good plan. And if he can deliver then Luthen will pay Cassian 200,000 reddits. Uh, when Cassian asks, what would we be stealing? Luthen stares at him and says, the quarterly payroll for an entire Imperial sector. This is the second thing in the episode, and it's the same scene, for goodness sakes, Yep, uh, that made me go and start just asking myself all these questions down this rabbit hole. And this is the point I was talking about just a moment ago, saying that this recontextualizes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those the, the original trilogy for me yeah and that's the idea that stormtroopers get paid isn't that that we take I mean, it on we take it for granted that right. that was even a thing right and i i mean and you know i didn't just being at this like totalitarian regime you don't think about that kind of stuff even when they talk about it in star <laughs> trek we, we that's right we, we 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 are above that now and money isn't anything like like we've 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 hit communist utopia in Star Trek. As soon and, as you as soon as you add in the fact that stormtroopers get paid, then your mind your mind just automatically goes to all the other implications that means. Right. That right. means that you you or I as a stormtrooper at a garrison have a have a a, a duty schedule that means that we yeah. have a life outside of that. Yes. And so when we watch robot chicken episodes and we see like uh, Larry and and uh, Ken going right. home to their wives that's that's a possibility it's yeah. uh every much a, a real possibility it's a real possibility and then you start to see in the comics when they you know like uh sergeant creel whoo um when they give it when they when they use names yep you know which is more sort of associated with uh like the first order when that you have phasma and you have the uh the red guy from resistance sorry oh yeah <laughs> uh pyre pyre um, and you see them taking names or using names uh, yeah. a lot, very similar to clones uh, at, you know, the high level clones. Also, you know, all the clones we loved had names, but you guarantee that they're the, the Cody's and the Rex's were the amount sort of that Star yeah. Wars has tried to dehumanize the the evil empire. And with right. just one line, oh, my God, they're all real people. Right. And then so how <laughs> relevant does it <clears throat> How relevant does Excuse it suddenly me, sorry, make yes. that uh, clerk's conversation about stormtroopers well, not knowing how to fix the toilet main? Yeah, it's suddenly exactly. you know, it, so it recontextualizes. And, and what I think now is like, you know, 
Han Solo, it it de scumbags him like. <laughs> <laughs> clearly a rescue mission of a princess is going to like 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 there's a fee associated with that and this like, yep. the, the understood that there's an economy that's that uh and i don't know how to express it all at once but there's an economy beyond He's this got bills to pay well yeah but there's the slave economy that we get like you know like you know luke's almost an indentured servant to his aunt and uncle and they that's they, right yep. they're toiling you know they're that the first middle class we see or low class that we mm. see but you don't you get the idea that they're toiling to live like they're working the land they're yeah. not exchanging goods for money that they earn and and i just it never occurred to me that stormtroopers are you know exchanging goods for, we don't actually you know, see money. right we, ne- we it, never see the lars uh sell the water so to right, us right yeah and so I guess I, I, I'm not sure as a child, I probably that never entered the picture and that as an adult, it maybe that carried through, but um, establishing this, this level of an economy. So then when you go, okay, that like all Lucas's stuff that we sort of barely paid attention to in, yep. in the prequels with the banking clans and the, and the, you know, all um, the stuff that you and I had said, I'd take more of that. Right. It's we're getting it and and contextualized in terms of like this working middle class and yep. Yep. and now and going like Cassian can get two hundred for this job. Why was whole solo being ripped off in the first movie? <laughs> <laughs> Seventeen thousand. What? <laughs> it used to be a lot. That's right. <laughs> but at the same time, with the clones, right? Yeah, they're not. I'm guessing they're not paid because they are purchased by the Republic at the time, right? They're Man, nothing more whole, than a commodity. That's that whole droid argument. Right. Yeah. The, droid, the droids aren't paid either. They're I, property. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so are whereas the you get to the stormtroopers, you got to recruit them and you got to give them that incentive. But it also explains further the ambitious people because there is that, you know, mm-hmm. monetary incentive to go up the ladder. So when they explain we kidnap children and then force them into military camps and then develop first order stormtroopers from that. Yep. You don't get the idea that Finn was being paid. No, no. he's there. No, right? don't, Not no. of his own free will. Right. And you know, um, I'm sure at the beginning of world war two, Nazi soldiers were paid, but by the end they certainly weren't. <laughs> it's almost, there's a, there's a parallel there to the Jedi that the Jedi did the same thing. Took children. Right. right. You know, no, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Nobody was paying the Jedi either. No, the uh, Republic so, funded the Jedi though. For no, one hundred percent. Yeah. Well, ostensibly the Jedi were there before the Republic. <clears throat> that's true. We could go down another rabbit hole. We should. Yeah, that's, we should a, whole other, that's a whole other one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's get to Coruscant. Come on. We cut to a uh, beautiful glory shot of Coruscant. By the way, love this shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like the episodes before and Rogue One before that, it tells us Coruscant. Capital of the Galaxy, where we cut to uh, an aerial shot of the cityscape looking down from above. Yeah, great at, shot. Uh, oh, beautiful shot. Yeah. Uh, straight, at street level, a blonde woman dressed in a white imperial uniform carrying a briefcase approaches a large pyramidal building, and the fade-in text tells us that this is the Imperial Security Bureau. Mm-hmm. Love the bureau, by the way. Love the look of the building. <coughs> I love how it kind of looks like the Imperial sigil just turned upright. Like it's the same number of spokes on the wheel as the, the mm. sigil. 
So I, I did a deep dive into the Imperial Security Bureau after uh, this stuff. That's a long. That's a long it's read, a, man. It is a long read. I didn't. I mean, I didn't scour it, but I <laughs> I skimmed as much as I could. But one yep. thing I found interesting, and like I, you know, I consider myself if I'm on the show, I, I kind of want to be an expert. So I, I, you know, if I if I don't know it, I want to look it up to know it. Yep. Yep. But I didn't realize that like canonically. Yep. The first Imperial ISB agent we see in Star Wars in live action is is Wolf Ularen. Yeah, so I actually brought I brought that up as well. Okay, because I got I, a slide on that. All right, wicked. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that before this week. Yeah, but and that speaks to I mean, Star Wars has evolved. Uh, you know, not only in the in the context of how we're watching it, but just like yeah. with the retconning of like. And the action figures have been famous for this. Everybody's got to have a name. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so as soon as you add a name, then they become real. And now they've got to have a story. And so if you he, wait long enough. Was he action figure Wolf Lauren and they took that character and made him into. I don't, I don't Clone believe that's the case. I think that they've just decided that, you okay. know, that his natural backstory was what we were presented with. Right, right, right. Well, the Imperial Security Bureau is a division of the Imperial military that functions as both an intelligence service and a law enforcement agency. The primary role is actually to identify and ferret out potential enemies to uh, the Emperor's New Order. Technically, the first reference to the ISB is A New Hope in 1977, where we see this officer, um, Admiral Ularen from the Clone Wars, who transferred to the army and went on to become a high-ranking member of the ISB. Also notably, uh, Alexander Callis was also an ISB agent until his defection sometime between 3 and 4 BBY. The organization would get fully fleshed out, including the first mention of the central office in the role-playing game supplement, the Imperial Sourcebook in uh, 1989. But as far as I can tell, this is actually our first look at the building itself. And as far as I'm concerned, it looks pretty cool. So if the convention for the ISB is to wear white tunics, does that yep. make uh, Krennic ISB? Well, that's another question. Uh, like, how does this whole, the uniform and the ranking convention thing, I didn't even go into it this week. <laughs> I know, I know. It's after what happened on the last one. Yeah, it's off the chains this week. Is, are they a captain? Are they a lieutenant? What are they? I don't know what they are. All right. Our lady agent is uh, ISB agent Dedra Miro, and she's played by uh, Irish actress Denise Goff. Uh, and Denise Goff is actually no stranger to Star Wars, having lent her voice uh, to the 2015 uh, Battlefront video game. Nice. You might recognize her, though, as the English language version of Yennefer of Vengeberg from The Witcher 3. The Wild Hunt. And uh, more uh, recently, she played Mary in the 2019 film, The Kid Who Would Be King. Inside the central office, in a large round meeting room, several ISB officers meet with their supervisor. This is uh, Major Partigaz to report on their sectors. A woman, Supervisor Grandy, reports that she may be uh, in need of more resources as Imperial detention numbers in the Ryloth sector are expected to rise over the next quarter. And that may further erode the security situation there. Um, I have to put a pause on that because oh, we yeah. know that we are well in the period that overlaps with Star Wars Rebels. 
So that means that can only mean one thing, and that is that Jam Syndulla's resistance is still in full swing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Perhaps even that episode of Rebels. That being said, that just opens the floodgate for other Rebels references. And if we're lucky, I can. <laughs> A cameo? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. When Major Partagaz asks her how she would allocate the resources, Grandy gives him a, this non-specific answer of the surveillance. But Partagaz wants specifics, and he says, looking for what? With a flustered chuckle, she says, anti-imperial activity is always. The Major Partagaz questions if her answer was intentionally vague, and then dismisses her with, I'll expect specifics by the end of the day. While not missing a beat, Major Partagaz then turns his attention to Supervisor Legret and asks about his agenda item from Arvala 6. Well, the balding man tells him that the conflict there has diminished enough that mining operations have resumed in a region that he refers to as the Occupied Lands. Um, we've never been to Arvala 6. Nope. However, um, Arvala 7, if you've forgotten... That is the world where Grogu was being held when the Mandalorian found him. Also the home of uh, Ugnat Quill. Um, also where the Jawas will um, scavenge your ship if you don't lock it up. Before <laughs> <laughs> then, he has spoken. That's right. Well, Major Partagaz isn't thrilled with the report because there is still what he calls storage issues with the displaced people, and he's still waiting for Legret to submit a memo of recommendation with uh, as to what to do about it. How bureaucratic is that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Storage. Like, he's taken, talk about the dehumanizing, mm -hmm. taking uh, displaced people and equating them to a supply issue? Oh, my Lord. Yeah, it's a great juxtaposition against how human the the... I guess burgeoning rebellion is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not surprising that the Empire uh, goes on to dehumanize basically a lot of things to make it more palatable, I think, to the people who are maybe doing those jobs. Sure. Because not everybody thinks they're a bad guy. The bad guys never think they're bad. They just think they're doing their job. Right. Well, according <laughs> to George Lucas's color scheme, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> These guys are in white outfits at this point. That's right. So. They think they're doing the right thing the lines are blurred they are blurred well changing the pace of the meeting major partagas gets up from his uh, seat and he begins to circle the table while he paces he asks what do we do here confused legret answers sir rephrasing the question the major says what is our purpose um and legret still not fully grasping the meaning blurts <laughs> out on arvala six at that, Major Partagaz opens the question to the room, adding, what do we do in this building? Why are we here? Now, Dedra, who's been quietly observing the whole time, she kind of shoots a, a look around the table like nobody else is saying anything, so... Here's your chance. Um, I, I kind of... I put a note in here, and I just want to... I'm going to bring this up now. I don't know if you guys noted this. I think it's worth noting that this table, there are 15 officers at this table. And so Dedra is only one of two women. Mm -hmm. And she's only, she's also one of two people that I would say are under the age of 60. Absolutely. Which Speaks volumes, right? It also 
uh, you know, it would stand to reason that some of these guys would have been Republic officers. Uh, for sure. They're Republic officers at one yeah, point. Yeah. Um, but talk about traditional uh, gender roles. And certainly that's where the bureaucracy would come in. Having right. been in the bureaucracy of the, mm-hmm. the Republic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I like the way that they've painted this. Like they really, they really pigeoned, uh, pigeoned her like, just sit there and be a good little girl. You're yeah. like, I, I actually wrote it here later on in my notes, but I actually said, you know, it kind of hits her that she's the diversity hire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It comes up several times in the episode. They deal with yeah. it. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, with supervisor Grandy having already been admonished and none of her male counterparts offering any explanation, Dedra pipes up with the decisive answer of to further security objectives by collecting intelligence providing useful analysis and conducting covert action, sir. And at that, Major Partagas congratulates her on her ability to recite the ISB mission statement, adding, wrong, (laughs) (laughs) without any reaction, lest she appears weak in the eyes of her colleagues, Dedra watches wide-eyed as Partagas sternly explains, security is an illusion. If you want security, call out the Navy or launch a regiment of troopers. He goes on to further explain that they're healthcare providers and they treat sickness by identifying symptoms. They locate germs, whether they arise from within or from the outside, adding that the longer it takes to identify a disorder, the harder it is to treat the disease. Mm, I got Thrawn, really big Thrawn vibes. Not not so much his character, but the way that Thrawn recontextualizes combat mm. recontextualizes art understanding the enemy um and 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 the way that this guy views uh essentially the spy the imperial spy network yeah to be to be doctors who cut the cut the contagion out of, yeah of the galaxy that's crazy scary <laughs> it's so like they're crazy scary as you said, you did a bunch of research. I mean, I could pull the Imperial source book off the shelf and I could flip Wait. through the section on Compnor, how thick that is. Yeah. But that is like so steeped in like that Legends Compnor oh, yeah. uh, uh, sort of text. I do like well, the use you... of the word Navy here, though. I like the use of the word Navy. Like, because it, it makes perfect sense. Previous, we've been chatting, like, you know, <laughs> is it a sort of naval reference? But here we have him actually saying, call the Navy. Yeah. So, yeah absolutely yeah and so, they, space you navy do, right and you do get the you know like tarkin was a uh, navy moth like like that's right you know the, uh, those are hello sean first uh, comment coming in from youtube tonight it's our friend sean colbert who says they need someone like thrawn in the shows mm. oh i mean it's almost at this point is it do we go as far as to say it's a given that it is happening it is happening. I can't yeah. see how they're not going to do it. I can't no. at this point. I mean, I would, I'm like 99.9999999999% sure we will be getting a live action Grand Admiral Thrawn. May, may in fact, yeah. be, it may in I, fact be Ray Stevenson. We we're yeah. not sure on that, but. And it, it could easily be a cameo in, in this series because this, it, I mean, it, it, he would not be out of place in this meeting. Except this might be a little below the stature. <laughs> well, that's true. Okay. Um, having returned to his own seat now, uh, Major Partagas faces his uh, subordinates and he asks, do you understand my meaning, Legret? 
The man acknowledges, yes, he does, and Partagaz tells him not to bother with the memo anymore because he's going to reassign it. And I watched the look on Legret's face as he just kind of looks away. like He literally has this look of, what the fuck just happened? Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I would not want to be an officer at that table right now. No. No way. All right. Um, Major Partagaz, I, I like this dude. I think he's pretty cool. Um, that's uh, Anton Lesser. You probably remember him from Game of Thrones where he played Maester Kyburn who became the hand of the queen to Cersei Lannister. This is the same guy who is responsible for the zombification of uh, the mountain. Well, Major Partagaz turns his attention to the man seated next to Legret. This guy, uh, Lieutenant Supervisor Blevin, uh, actually calls him Lieutenant, which I thought was very British, very nice. Lieutenant Supervisor Blevin, played by actor Ben Bailey Smith, uh, who has a ton of of uh, British TV credits, but uh, nothing that I've actually seen him in. Um, mm. Blevin, uh, by the way, is the other person in the room that I would say is under 60. Yeah. The major asks him about the incident on Ferrex. Blevin explains that the corporate security forces there tried to execute a warrant and ended up with more trouble than they expected. When the major asks him to define trouble, Blevin reports several dead, property damage, a disruption of service, and a stolen Imperial Star Path unit uh, having been recovered at the scene. While the word of the Star Path unit kind of perks up Dedra's attention, she kind of takes notice. When Major Partagaz asks about the responsible parties, Blevin says they're unknown, but that he's traveling to Ferrix immediately after this meeting. And the Major says, well, I'll meet with you before you depart, and then turns his uh, attention to Supervisor Young, to address his agenda item, which is an interesting one because Young's agenda item is to uh, request additional protection for star traffic to the Abrian sector. Supervisor Young calls it a protective measure as there is an increase in uh, construction shipments going to Scarif. Mm. At the same time, Dedra turns her attention to the console in front of her and begins sifting through pages of reports until she stops on something that catches her eye. All right, so the Abrian sector is kind of cool. Um, there's a lot of history here, um, as it contains the Rishi, the the Rishi uh, region of space, like the the Rishi maze that Obi Wan yeah. talked about. Which means that it's where Camino was hidden. That's where Camino is. Right. So uh, the cloning facilities on Camino were there, um, and of course. Um, Scarif itself becomes the home, if it's not already at this point, uh, of the the Citadel, as it were, mm-hmm. which is home to several of the Empire's most valuable uh, military secrets. So that first appeared in the Star Wars Legends novel, The Last Command, published in 1993. Uh, that was the third book of Thrawn, uh, the original Thrawn trilogy written by Timothy Zahn. Um, and even though it's not the first time that we've seen elements of this trilogy show up in modern Star Wars things like Mount Tantus uh, that showed up in the Bad Batch also came from the same trilogy. And in the same kind of similar vein, right? Cut to a a deep green mountainous world uh, where the text Aldani uh, fades in. As the camera passes over a mountain, we can see Luthen's ship resting on a valley floor. Cut to the interior of the ship where Cassian is now shaving his face with the uh, karambit knife uh, that he used to cut the gauze. Standing behind uh, Cassian, Luthen tells him to think of a name for himself. 
Think of an alias that he can use for the upcoming mission. Well, seeing himself in the small mirror on the wall, you're left with this impression that Cassian hasn't seen his reflection like this in a long time. Putting the knife down on the basin, he wipes his face clean with a towel and he turns to Luthen, quietly remarks, Clem. Turning to leave, Luthen gathers his coat and acknowledges Cassian's new moniker, well, for the next five days, you'll be Clem. Well, from the cockpit of the ship, Luthen uses his uh, macro binoculars to observe a cloaked figure walking down the valley wall towards them. The figure has a hood up, but uh, as Luthen zooms in, we can see that it's a woman. And Cassian joins Luthen in the cockpit saying, who's that? And uh, Luthen tells him, you'll be working for her. Well, taken back, Cassian remarks, I thought you were in charge. Luthen corrects him. I never said that. Speaking matter-of-factly, uh, Luthen tells Cassian that she, whoever she is, is going to hate this idea and that she's going to argue with him. Getting, uh, um, getting up from the pilot's seat, he tells Cassian that it's better that he stays here so that he can work it all out. As he steps out of the cockpit, Luthen removes a long gold chain from around his neck. At the end of the chain dangles a very large and very blue kyber crystal. He turns it over in his hands a few times before uh, turning to Cassian and saying, take this. And Cassian says, what is it? And Luthen, Luthen tells him that it's a down payment. Continuing, uh, he calls it a Kuwati signet, a blue kyber, a sky stone. He tells him it represents the ancient world and celebrates the uprising against Rakatan invaders. Oh, man. Wrapping, wrapping the chain around the Kyber, he hands it to Cassian, telling him not to take any less than 50,000 credits for it, adding that he wants it back as it is more precious to him. With the Kyber in hand, Cassian looks it over for a moment before meeting Luthen's gaze and says, if I live. Luthen turning to, turns to leave and reiterates that he wants it back. Cassian watches the man and shouts, against 200,000! And without turning back, Luthen shouts, I'm giving you my word, and then leaves Cassian standing there alone with his thoughts, staring at the trinket. So the show that refuses to give us fan <laughs> service <laughs> makes the deepest cut ever. Well, so this is where Another I'm at. One. I mean, the blue kyber by itself isn't terribly remarkable um no. we've had kyber introduced to us we did a whole episode on that by the way if you haven't <laughs> if you haven't seen that one you can go check out our uh, chasing kyber uh video about lightsabers we did a whole deep dive on kyber crystals but it's the story around this particular crystal that makes it potentially something special superficially he tells um cassian that it's a kuwati signet and uh, for anybody who's been around Star Wars for a while, Kuat should sound like a pretty familiar place. Yep. Um, that's home to a major uh, Imperial shipyard, the Kuat Drive Yard. But more importantly, he talks about the stone representing the ancient world uh, and talks about this uprising against the, uh, the Rakata. Well, the Rakata are an ancient humanoid amphibian species that first appeared in the uh, 2003 video game uh, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. And the crystal connection comes from the fact that the Rakata weren't exactly friendly uh, and their expansionist society eventually brought them into conflict with the ancient forebears of the Jedi. And we've mentioned these guys before, the, the Jedi or the Jedi. 
depending on how you want to pronounce it, who used crystals in the forging of their early weapons that they referred to as force blades. Now, these aren't the the proto lightsabers that we've talked about before, but these are actual metal swords that have a crystal fused into the hilt so that the blade could be imbued with force power. Mm -hmm. The implication here being that a large portion of the legend's history from Knights of the Old Republic has now just been canonized with this Rakatan invasion. Oh, it's crazy. Uh, The infinite empire, if you will. The now, also invented yeah. hyperspace travel. Well, that's it. They are they are listed as being one of the earliest species ever to break hyperspace. Yeah. Um, but if that implication is true, um, that puts that Kyber at uh, over twenty five thousand years old, mm-hmm. and that's pretty significant. It's the Infinite Empire. Is that what they call them? Infinite Empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, now, Ricotta have been canonized um, and to some degree, but there is so much information on these guys that we just could not cover it all um, in our show. So if you have not played Knights of the Old Republic, I highly recommend you do. Um, has one of the greatest, oh my God, moments ever. You will literally put the control down because your mind will be completely blown. But there's a couple other things and I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to go over this really quickly because I don't think that there's a lot of water in this. I think it's actually part of the way that he just describes the crystal. He also makes reference to uh, Skystone. I think Skystone is just an analogy for blue Kyber, blue like the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you actually look up Skystone, you don't get a specific. There is no reference Star Wars reference for Skystone, like quotation Skystone. Mm-hmm. But what you will find is uh, you will get a, a reference to something called a Muntur stone, which was uh, seven large boulders that uh, Jedi would use for telekinesis uh, training. Oh, crazy. The idea of being able to lift these boulders, some of them being like like tons, tons each. <laughs> but those were introduced in, uh, well, was it Star Wars Galaxy Guide number nine, Fragments from the Rim, also, that's the same book that introduced High Inquisitor Tremaine, one of the, my favorite characters that we've talked about before. I don't think that there's a, an interconnection here between Skystone as a thing and Blue Kyber as a thing. I don't think that these are two stones fused together. I, I do think that Luthen, when he says that it's a Kuwati signet, okay, it came from Kuwat. It right. is a Blue Kyber. It's also called Skystone. That's right. what I think it is. I don't think there's anything else going on beyond that. It sort of reminds me of the um, the the word for force users in mm. Thrawn's in, in Mithrani or whatever is literally translates to Skywalker. Skywalkers, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind of cool. All right, so the young woman approaches the ship just as the boarding ramp lowers, and uh, and uh, Luthen steps out. He greets her with a hearty "Hello, Vel." Well, at the same time, uh, the woman, Val, says, we almost didn't get the message. She tells him that the Empire has started patrolling the Old Stone Valley. And uh, because of that, it now takes a full day to walk here from wherever her camp is. But Luthen takes the news as a positive, uh, saying that he likes her vigilance, adding that he counts on her discipline. Cutting to the chase, Vel blurts out, obviously there's something wrong. And then downplaying it, Luthen casually says, no, things are coming together quite nicely. 
Meanwhile, Cassian is uh, sitting on one of the control surfaces in the cockpit, uh, watching the conversation unfold outside, just a few feet away from him. Um, I imagine that even with the ramp down, anything he can hear is probably muffled. Yeah. But he watches intently anyway as Vel paces in front of Luthen with a hand against her forehead and throwing her arm up in what appears to be frustration. For a brief moment, Cassian takes a look at the control yoke uh, in the cockpit, but then the whirring of gears catches his attention and he Mm -hmm. turns to see the three-eyed droid modification staring at him as it says, something I can help you with. What you would think. (laughs) And Cassian just kind of stares back out the window and doesn't say a word. Outside the ship, Luthen verbally runs down Cassian's resume, as it were. He tells her that uh, he can pilot, he can shoot, he can lie, and he speaks multiple languages, including Alaren, uh, Mao, and Nari, finishing that he's got nerves of steel and he's not afraid to kill. There are no direct references to any of these languages, by the way, no. um, but at least uh, two, two of them, uh, Mio and Nari, are uh, pre-existing names uh, of uh, Star Wars characters. Mio, uh, remember the Cyclopean-looking alien from the the cantina in A New Hope? Mm -hmm. That's Mio. And uh, Nari, Nari was the name of the Jedi Padawan that was hung uh, in Kenobi. Oh, crazy. Vel, still pacing, says, I can't believe you're doing this. She makes a point of emphasizing that the operation kicks off in just three days, and Luthen tells her that having Cassian on the team dramatically increases their chances of success. But Vel is now what I would say straight up pissed off. She and her team have been preparing for five months, and adding an unknown this late in the game is something that she's not okay with because it will tear a rift in the team. But Luthen sternly says, well, that's not much of a team then, is it? And the remark hits Vel like a deer in the headlights, and she visibly recoils from it. Lowering his voice, Luthen says that um, <clears throat> she knows that they are vulnerable, and that by adding Cassian to the team, he's buying her some critical redundancy in every area. But Vel, taken back by the statement, says, what do you mean buying? And when Luthen tells her that he's personally paying Cassian 200,000 credits, she says no, and starts pacing again. Bell, Avell, uh, now beyond upset as she's yelling at Luthen how she and her team have been eating roots and sleeping on rocks for this rebellion. And now he's gone and hired a mercenary, which she's like top of the lungs yelling at this point. Yeah. Cassian now uh, right up against the window uh, of the cockpit. He watches the situation unfolding. Luthen tells Vel that, uh, you know, she's wasting energy and they need this operation to work adding that a failure would be devastating. Frustrated, Vel says, what would I tell the others? And Luthen says, well, you tell them this was always part of the plan. Staring back at Luthen, she says, are you giving me a choice here? And his answer is anything uh, but what she was expecting because he says, you take him or you call it off adding that he was planning on shutting down the operation anyway, that the meeting that they are having right now was originally intended for that purpose, something that she was clearly not aware of and definitely unprepared for. But because Luthen quite unexpectedly picked up Cassian, her odds of now have just improved, and he's willing to let the mission go on. 
Continuing, Luthen instructs Vel to take Cassian in and lie about how everything around his inclusion on the mission came to pass, adding that she can plug him in as a replacement for anyone that goes down along the way. Lost somewhere between dejection and outright pissed off again, Vel stares at the ground and shakes her head as she pokes the ground with her walking stick. And with her lack of interest in what he's saying, Luthen now screams at her, Look at me! And uh, she does. <laughs> and he launches into her like a military <laughs> officer would with a subordinate. You wanted to lead. This is what it comes to. You've got three days. If something feels off. Something turns or someone starts to fold. You step up. You lead and you cancel the mission. Lowering his voice again, he adds, I need to know that you understand. Pursing her lips together, Vel looks at Luthen and speaks quietly, asking, and what if he's the problem? Luthen answers coldly, well, that's the advantage of renting him. He's disposable, adding that this has to be a win, Vel. For a moment, the two stare silently at each other before Vel accepts with a simple yes. Turning towards the ship, Luthen calls out, Clem! And Cassian, Clem, debarks to join them. Um, I talked earlier about how I felt that this episode was uh, an episode that really uh, showed us sort of uh, ambitions. Mm-hmm. really starting to see like here's here's a great example her ambition to want to be a leader Absolutely. she's been put she's been put in that position and we're going to see just how how prepared slash not prepared she is <laughs> all right this character that's uh vel sartha she's played by uh, faye marzi uh faye marzi she appeared in a, a series called fresh meat with jack whitehall where she played uh, candace pelling she also uh, was in 11 episodes of Game of Thrones. Do you remember the faceless man? Did you guys watch Game of Thrones? Mm-hmm. Remember the faceless man that Arya was trying to, she was trying to train under so that she could do the same thing? Correct, yeah. He had, he had an assistant that beat the crap out of her? That's right. That's her. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cut back to uh, Morlana 1, where the Primor Security Headquarters is now bustling with activity. Several Imperial agents, as well as army troopers, appear to be securing the facility. Oh, not only that, the guy in the foreground in that shot is like sweeping the garbage off the uh, off the desk. And you can see that the blue noodle container is there still, (laughs) (laughs) which I laughed my ass off at. (laughs) Well, it looks like we lost Hank. Let's see if he comes back in. here. I'm here. Can you hear me? You are there. I can hear you. I we cannot can see you. Uh, my mom just called. I'm just. I, I'm waiting for the call to drop. Oh, okay. That's Sorry, okay. mom. No, it's okay. I'll, I'll I'll get her on the flip side. Okay. Very good. Still this is one of the things that kind of confused me. <laughs> in what way? In, in just like the distance travel, because when the chief left in episode one, yeah, he was off to give a report. I'm assuming to one of those people that was uh, sit down clearly the he was going yeah. report. You make a good point. Clearly, he was going to give his report to Blevin. I assume that yeah. Blevin was the guy that took the report as the sector. Well, maybe not even Blevin. Blevin's an ISB guy, so he's not necessarily a governor. So I guess maybe yeah. it would have been the, the governor for that sector. Because his report that he had given would not have included the thing happen on the, barracks. No, it wouldn't, for sure. For sure. But, but again, the, the ISB... Makes it to them. 
with the ISB really uh, as an intelligence agency, really, I mean, super superficially, they are like the internal affairs of the empire. Like that's their job is to make sure that there's no, their, their job is to, to like spy on the spies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause that news gets to the report fairly quickly. Right. Right. And you good then, to go, you know, yes, sir. All right. Yeah, Thank it does. You. It gets back very quickly. All right, so where am I at here? 23, that's where I'm Blue at. Noodles. Cut back to Morlana 1. Yes, Morlana 1, where the Primor Security Headquarters is bustling with activity. Several Imperial agents, as well as Army troopers, appear to be scouring or securing the facility. Inside Chief Inspector Hines' office, Blevin sits behind his desk, while the Chief, along with Deputy Cyril Karn and Sergeant Mosk, stand at ease in front of him. Blevin remarks that the, ma- uh, the men to the men that they will immediately relinquish all comm devices, all weapons, and all documents. They will not return to their living quarters, and they will be instead escorted to the local transfer station where they will be issued with any personal items that the Imperial inspectors have deemed necessary. He also tells them that they will sign off on the after-action report that details their involvement and culpability in the botched operation on Ferex. Well, Hein, you know, tries to answer, uh, to ask a question, but Blevin is not interested in entertaining him. Instead, Blevin says that the men uh, in signing the report, they will actually not be bothered to read it either, mm-hmm. at which point the chief basically does the, but I had nothing to do with this. And Blevin agrees with him. Getting up from behind the desk, he moves to stand in front of the three men where he espouses how it took the combined ingredients of idiocy, ineptitude, and total disengagement for this farce to reach the full apex of this incredulous disaster. <laughs> and then Mosk on the end, I, and I don't where's his mind when he puts <laughs> his hand it. up? He puts his hand up like... He's going to say something. I bet he was going to defend them. I bet he was going to launch into one of his little crazy speeches about, you know, the, the keeping, the, keeping the sword sharp. Right, right, yeah. We were just sharpening the sword. <laughs> May I go to the bathroom, sir? <laughs> it was literally like a Monty Python sketch for a second there. I just, oh, it, that was yes, one of my it was. Yeah. Moments. Blevin just looks, and you can see, like, you see his shoulders, like, seriously? <laughs> He goes on to say how uh, his files are filled with corporate security fiascos, but this incident takes the prize. Turning his attention to uh, Cyril Karn, Blevin says, proud are we? He tells him, take solace in this. You will not be replaced, adding that uh, he has rung the final bell on corporate independence. Nice way of being told, uh, you're fired. (laughs) Blevin goes on to tell the three of them that uh, as of this morning, the the Morlana system is now under permanent imperial authority before turning back to Karn and saying congratulations on that. Pretty safe to say Karn's career as a security agent for any agency is over. He could become a security guard at a cracker factory. (laughs) The doorman at the cheesecake factory. There you go. I mean, I think we've set this character up too much to uh walk away from him i absolutely think we're gonna see him again but i have some questions around yeah i think you're looking at like capacity a a, a, a rebel spy if i've ever seen one 
Well, yeah. so that's that's an interesting one because he's got such a high degree of like his personal he's morals. Like, no, his personal morals. What drove him to do something? Two men died, and he did right. not want to. He didn't want to let it go. No, he did what he thought was right. Like actually, that's right. true. Yeah. And he was he was driven. So, what, Hank, you're absolutely right. That could drive him completely he could be the 180 flip and he could be a defector like we could see him completely embrace the rebellion yeah there's a part of me that thinks that they are setting him up and i don't know how they'll make the connection but could he be an ally for dedra on the imperial side of things could there be you know a revenge thing that you know he was going after cassian and cassian's still out there on the lamb so is he focused on you know my personal tragedy of getting fired, you know, is, is more important or I'm going to get that bastard. Well, see, if she chases the rabbit, the Ferrex rabbit hole, she might find this guy's name in a file. She might find uh, that he's been dismissed and she might find he's, Oh, Hey, he's living here on Coruscant. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm thinking that it's a 50, 50 at this point that he could flip a uh, rebel or he could essentially help her. Because right now he's just he's Clem, he's Clem the nobody. <laughs> right now, that's exactly who he is, though, right? Right, absolutely. All right. Well, cutting back to Aldani, we get a, a beautiful shot of uh, this river that's winding through the mountains. And uh, as the camera draws in, we can see both Cassian and Vel walking across the top of this uh, ridge. Cassian, by the way, is now wearing Vel's uh, Vel's cloak. She asks him uh, if his arm is something that uh, she needs to worry about. His arm that he got shot in back on Ferrix. He tells her no. Uh, and Vel adds that uh, it's a long walk and it will take them all night. As they walk along, Cassian asks, uh, who is he? Clearly referring to Luthen. And uh, she tells Cassian uh, now under the alias of Clem that he should have asked himself when he had the chance. And in a very honest moment, Cassian tells Vel that all he knows is that Luthen told uh, told him that she, Vel, was the boss and that she wouldn't like him, Cassian, being there. Well, stopping on the trail, Vel stares hard at Cassian, saying he is someone that we will never discuss. She then lays it out that uh, when they get to camp, they'll tell the group that this was all her idea and that was the plan right from the beginning. She adds that if he changes that in any way, the two of them are going to have a big problem. Just want to point out if nobody's actually thought about this out loud, Luthen's name has never been named by anybody at this point. No, no. He's a he's a fa he's a nameless nobody. Yeah, that's in that's why in the second episode I kept calling him by the actor's name because nobody had actually named Skarsgard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess you could have called him the 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 Baron Harkonnen. Client. <laughs> Eric Selvig. <laughs> As the uh, two turn back to the mountain path, Cassian asks, why so far? Vel tells him plainly that uh, they're robbing the armory at the Aldani garrison, and there's a nearby airfield that has nothing better to do than uh, run patrols. So this is now considered the safe route. Cassian says, uh, he told me about the payroll, not the garrison. And with an obvious aloofness about her, Vel replies, I don't know who you're talking about. Incredulously, Cassian questions, you're taking on an Imperial Armory? And Vel rhetorically shoots back, are you not joining us? 
<laughs> As Cassian questions, how many of us are there? We begin to hear the distant sound of those twin ion engines, the very same twin ion engines that uh, just happened to power a couple of TIE fighters. Uh, Vel tells Cassian that with him now in the crew, there are seven of them. And Cassian is like completely flabbergasted by that. And uh, Vel shouts at him to save his wind because it is a long walk. And just then Cassian hears it. And it's the, they, they turn to see a pair of TIE fighters sweeping low across the valley. Vel shouts at Cassian to get low and tuck in. And uh, as the two of them hunker down under this like craggy outcropping, a pair of TIE fighters thunder overhead, not more than a couple hundred meters, and certainly close enough that if the pilot was attentive enough, he might have actually seen them. Hmm. But the fighters continue on their flight path without turning back. And when they're clear, Vel tells Cassian that, well, they won't be back today. And the two carry on along the mountain path. Back on Coruscant in Dedra's office, she and one of her staff, uh, this gentleman's name is Attendant Heert. Uh, they're each scouring through some reports. Heert, looking at the report from Ferrix, indicates that uh, one local and four Primor employees were killed and that they misspelled the word Ferrix. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dedra uh, stares at her own pad, wondering aloud, where is my star path unit? As she continues to sift through data, she remarks how Blevin had mentioned it during the meeting with Major Partagaz, and it has to be here. Just as Heert mentions there being a new trend, a new, sorry, just as Heert mentions there being a raw transmission in the data that he's looking at, Deidre pipes up with a hang on. It looks as if she's found what she's looking for, and uh, we can see a readout of the Starpath unit along with some other information. Dedra reads it. It says, uh, Varnisi unauthorized equipment, Ferrix 0430. Ensign retrieved a sealed Imperial N9 Starpath unit from the site. Facing here, she says, that is our box from Steerguard. Um, Steerguard, by the way, is a new location being introduced here. Um, clearly, it's obviously a, a, a new naval shipyard. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't pull it. I could not pull out the... Uh, the the orabesh off of this one so andy whatever you pulled out yeah. there is more than what i could get yeah the bottom Looks section like... there i couldn't get the red because of the contrast but uh yeah it's definitely like name xid and possibly location okay i could not translate all of it right first right. line name is ferrix so you know where you're going yep but you'd figure that would fall under location but i you would think so <clears throat> here nods uh saying it has to be and uh, Dedra says that gives them jurisdiction to investigate it. Now she orders him to go to Blevin's office and request everything that they have on Ferrix. But here it cocks his head apprehensively and says that it might be, you know, it might mean more coming from you. And Dedra thinks about it for a split second before saying that she doesn't want to spark Blevin's interest, leaving here to carry out her instructions. <laughs> so off you go. Uh, attendant here, that's uh, Jacob James Beswick. He uh, was most recently in the film 1911, where he played uh, Lance Corporal Duff. And like most of the cast on this show, has a slew of British television credits. Nothing that I really recognized. 1917? 1917, the film, but uh, that's a film. I'm talking about his television credits. He was in a lot of TV that I just, so much British TV that I'm like, I don't know any of this. He's in a lot of date type shows. Oh, okay. Why? Well, no, I mean, he's in. He's in two with with dates. That's all. I mean. 
uh, the, the ones that you've watched. <laughs> Fair enough. We cut to an orbital shot of uh, Coruscant where Luthen's ship drops out of hyperspace. And uh, it's a pretty cool shot because we actually get to see three out of four uh, of the moons of Coruscant in this shot. Can't tell you which ones they are, but three of them. Three. Uh, the droid mod announces that they are orbiting Coruscant. And uh, from off camera, um, we can hear Luthen say, your controls, landing protocol 037. The droid mod repeats the order as the display attached to the yoke rotates forward with a map on it, uh, as well as uh, some Orabesh. I think you got that one too, didn't you? Yeah, you did. I got some of this um, one, yeah. Not 100% legible, but what what is likely a, a misprint, uh, because the first word is clearly supposed to say Coruscant when you read it contextually. Um, yeah, the second, the second and third character are the Orinth and the Nen. I know, they're supposed to be the double so, O of the Orinth, but when yeah. you put it in context, it just doesn't make sense. No, and it follows that way for both lines underneath that too, but it's Core World and then possibly Coruscant again. Again, yeah, yeah, yeah. Suffice to say that that's the landing coordinates. <laughs> yeah, we're going there. All right, Luthen, uh, Luthen activates a hidden switch and an interior wall separates that sliding open to reveal a uh, brightly lit secret compartment behind it. And I totally got the Cape Room vibes uh, from like Lando's Millennium Falcon. Yeah, totally. Inside the compartment, uh, there's a three, what a three-tiered vanity slides down one of the walls and uh, Luthen flips open the top tier and it's a dressing mirror. Methodically, he cleans his face. He puts on a wig and changes his clothes while putting on several pieces of jewelry until we get this full reveal where he doesn't look like a you know like a a, a, a like a dock worker anymore like a, a scoundrel type he looks more like what what i would call a coruscanti socialite yeah totally yeah like velvets and the deep purples he, he, and... he, like the way he, he just even gets into character by himself he's by oh himself my gosh yeah 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 the, you know that scene you yeah, have putting there. on the face smile standing in the inside the secret compartment he practices a few mannerisms which are markedly different than the way we've seen him act before. Um, I said just off to the side here, I said this is like, this is a real Batman, Bruce Wayne kind of thing going on here. Mm-hmm. Who's the character and who's the man? Right. And I kind of wonder, like, I don't think even at this point that he even knows. Like, there's to me, there's this, this like, there's a blur there and he's not sure where one begins and the other ends. All right. Um, Is it just me, or did uh, when you're looking at him with that wig on, smiling, does he yep. not give you Emperor Palpatine vibes? Well, kind of. But I also think <laughs> that's him, bit. you know, just reminding himself that you know now he's got to he's got, like you said he's Hank. You got he's got to play a role. Yeah. Got to play the role. <laughs> There's almost like maybe it's just me, but I, I get like and we'll see it later on uh, at the gallery. But there's almost like a, a more feminine quality to him when he's the way he projects himself like yeah yeah it's like like property absolutely yes yeah 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 almost like the americans uh when they put their wigs on right the big the long white wigs yeah yeah yeah. speaking of the wig i have to make the joke (laughs) i have to make the joke because this thing i i'm like this is like the most amazing wig ever made because because either luthan is like 
Fletch level master of disguise <laughs> or, the, or this this wig That's works the on the reference. same it works on the same technology as Marty's uh, air mags in back to the future where it just <laughs> to his head. Cause go, it go, is a perfect match. Perfectly blended. Um, uh, wig by Nike. Um, yeah. Wig technology. <clears throat> okay. Back on um, Aldani. Uh, Vel and Cassian have reached an abandoned settlement. Vel, crouching down, pulls away a piece of ground, revealing a hidden cache of uh, supplies. Because uh, it's going to take all night to get to camp. Got to have something to eat, something to drink. Cassian asks her, uh, what is this place? And she tells him that's nothing special, adding that there used to be several settlements like this one, um, saying that more than 40,000 Aldani had lived in the Highlands for centuries, um, but it's only taken the Empire about 10 years to displace them all. Vel tells him that there is what is called an enterprise zone now in the lowlands, complete with new factories and new towns and imperial housing. She says that Aldani has the unfortunate quality of being close to nothing and yet not very far away from everything. And she goes as far as to call it the perfect distribution hub if someone was trying to take over the galaxy. Right. Because that's like not on the nose at all. <laughs> Coming back to the more immediate uh, matter, Cassian says, then who are we supposed to be? And Vel tells him that there's still a few shepherds left in the hills, along with what she calls nature lovers and mystics and dead enders. Handing Cassian a canteen. She, yeah, she tells him to uh, drink up. They still have a ways to go. It's funny when she said the word shepherd. Yeah. I thought... Uh, well that the root word i started thinking too much i guess about that in that moment and i was like i wonder if they have sheep in star wars uh, stand by <laughs> <laughs> okay we will yeah i want to talk about that too because that's actually that's a fun one to talk about back at the uh, central office uh, dedra approaches blevin's office she takes a moment to gather herself before letting herself in doesn't knock, by the way. She just opens the door and lets herself in. Yeah, you gotta you gotta go into situations like this, like wearing the pants full. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I'm often at work. It's funny, but I'm often in these weird uh, chain of command uh, confrontations with uh, people that <coughs> I don't know. They have much more schooling than I do, and yeah, and, and this level of air, and and you have to. Uh, you have to project a certain kind of quality. This is a, you know, as somebody who wore a uniform, this is something that we saw all the time. This talk about having to project and having to prove and having to always be always having to prove yourself. And she's getting it like on, it sounds to me like there are several disadvantages of working against her. One, she's new to the department as we find out later on. She's young, which means she's not taken seriously because you're not experienced enough. Right. She's one of two women on that mm -hmm. board. So again, not taken very seriously. Right. And he doesn't see her, even though they're the same rank, he doesn't see her as his equal, not by no. a long shot. No. no. While Blevin standing inside uh, the office has his back to her and he doesn't bother to turn around when Dedra enters. Without wasting as much as a single breath, she starts on him about how her aide has informed her that uh, he's refused to turn over the file on Ferrix. And dismissively, he says, I have work to do. 
And then she reminds him that this was an official request from a member of her staff. And Blevins suggests, well, maybe you should book an appointment. Well, she tells him plainly that she wants the full Ferrix report. And uh, Blevins says, that's my sector. But Deidre's not backing down because she informs him that the Starpath unit that was recovered was stolen from the Steer Guard Naval Yard in her sector. And that's enough to give her jurisdictional access. Well, turning to face her, Blevin furrows his brow as he says, you've been here, what, just over a year? He then tells her that uh, you might want to steady the ladder before you start climbing. <laughs> and Deidre says, uh, well, I'm not looking for career advice. Taking a couple steps toward her. And this is this is a totally like, that's a man thing. Like <laughs> using your, your physical presence to impose that whole stepping closer to her to like, become more physically overbearing you fall here and you fall alone still focused on what she came for dedra says plainly are you denying my request and when he says for the second time today she turns on her heels and storms off with a fine i'll take it to major partigas and as she leaves blevin calls after her don't look down like it's this total oh, yeah. i mean there's a Clearly, there's a rivalry here. Zero respect. No, none at all. For her. On Aldani, uh, Cassian and Vel uh, travel all through the night. Then we cut to a daylight shot where a simply dressed man sleeps leaning against a rocky feature. uh, And there's a blaster rifle cradled across his chest. The young man appears to be barely into his 20s, is suddenly startled awake as a blaster pistol is shoved into his face um huge moment i don't know if anybody appreciate uh, appreciates it appreciates this as much as i do especially having started our new uh weapons of star wars series mm. this is the dt12 heavy blaster pistol that's the greedo pistol yeah 100 um this is the to, to the best of my recollection and anybody who's watching or who's listening right now the dt12 heavy blaster pistol has not been seen in live action star wars since a new hope in 77 wicked first time back on screen i think that's really cool um however it was available as a downloadable content for uh, battlefront in uh, 2015 Hmm. by the way if you haven't uh if you haven't checked out our weapons of star wars playlist i would recommend you do um and maybe start with uh pew pew a blaster story where we covered all the blasters used in uh, a new hope including the dt12 A man off camera can be heard saying, everyone's dead. Switching now to the sentry's point of view, we can see an older man, also simply dressed. Uh, he tucks the pistol back into his belt as he tells the young, uh, the young sentry, while you were sleeping, they snuck in and they slit everyone's throat. The sentry, now wide awake, looks very sheepish as he listens. And the older man tells him that uh, had he fallen asleep on watch for, uh, uh, he mentions three people here, Mossy, Garvish or Saw Guerrera, they would have put uh, put his head on a pike just for a laugh. Now, there's no reference uh, for uh, there's no Star Wars references for these names for Mossy or Garvish. Uh, presumably, they are other partisans like Saw Guerrera. Right. But lumping them in with Saw Guerrera does kind of, you know, infer that, you know, a level of ruthlessness, you know, that Saw Guerrera was known to have, that he was more extreme than other rebel cells. Absolutely. The young sentry offers a sheepish, sorry, 
quickly followed by, don't tell Vel. And the older man says, I won't. You will. Adding, and you better think of what you're going to say because she's coming down the hill right now. And from their position behind the rock, the two men look up the mountain. The older man remarks, hold on, as he pulls out a set of macro binoculars and uh, focusing in on Vel and Cassian, slowly making their way towards them. He hands the binoculars over to the younger man and he says, what do you make of that? And then the older man looks back over his shoulder and he says, we better make sure uh, that they know what's coming. All right, these two gentlemen here, this is uh, Karis Nemec. Karis Nemec, that's our young sleeping sentry played by Alex Lothar, uh, who appeared in the imitation game as uh, young Alan Turing. He he basically was a uh, um, young Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> And then uh, more recently than that, he appeared as uh, King Charles VI in the uh, last duel with um, um, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Okay, and the other, uh, the older, uh, the older fellow, the guy with the the DT12 pistol, that's uh, Arvel Skeen. Arvel Skeen is played by uh, Ibn Moss Bacharach, and uh, I was a big fan of the Last Ship. He appeared in that uh, where he played uh, Niles for ten episodes. He was also in uh, the Netflix Punisher as uh, David Lieberman, a.k.a. Micro. We cut to the uh, encampment where uh, another one of Vel's company men, this guy, uh, Terramin Barcona, steps into the foreground uh, armed with a rifle. He stops and he looks off into the distance. Um, Cassian and Vel approach the camp from far off. At the same time, Karis and uh, Arvel, or uh, um, as they call them, uh, Nemec and Skeen, uh, cross the nearby uh, river on their way back into camp. Terraman asks, who is it? And Skeen says, I was going to ask you. As uh, Cassian and Vel walk into camp, they pass a paddock containing several black sheep grazing on what appears to be some hay. Mm-hmm. Um I do want to talk about this for a second because yeah, as long I mean, as they have more than normal horns, they do. They are Star Wars. <laughs> um, unless they're retconning Nerf, Man, which I do maybe. not believe. I do not believe that they are. No, I always thought Nerf were cattle. Like that's the way that they, and they're depicted as being like more like a like a cross between a cow and a, a bison, right? Um, but yes, Star Wars does have sheep. In fact, um. Sheep are are canon in Star Wars. They are uh, in the new canon. Issue number 17 of the Dr. Afro comic book has uh, sheep. Um, Legends continuity. Now, sheep have appeared uh, in Star Wars as far back as 1984, where we first saw sheep in uh, Caravan of Courage, an Ewok adventure. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Somebody's got to be weaving those Jedi robes, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It's funny right. that that popped up though, because I like this. Uh, this was my Sheep. point at the screen moment because I was like, "Wait, shepherds. there they are." Okay, that's a root word. Shouldn't it be like bantha herds? Or yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. shepherds. What are what are they shepherding? Yeah, <laughs> right. So perfect. I was when I saw that, I went, "Okay, I'm not crazy." <laughs> no, you are not. You are definitely not. Well, and we've had regular animals before. We have. Um, true. It's true. We had we have mice and rats and like all the common like stuff that we've talked about before that's right um some speed of birds and stuff mm-hmm. although apparently they get turned into porgs though in the in some cases right <laughs> a young woman joins the men near the river and uh, terraman looks at her asking what's she doing 
And uh, we get a nice little team shot uh, of everybody as we wait for uh, Cassian and Vel to arrive. I'm going to just hold on here for a second because this is by far the the, the shot here, the, the team shot of everybody, is the one that I think got a lot of people talking uh, in the in the in the fandom menace, as it were, in the discourse. Right. Can we talk about space AKs for a minute? Nice, right? Sure. Space AK AK forty sevens. How are you guys with the the whole notion of the AK? I mean, I think we're pretty clear on this. We we talked about it before, but for our first time watchers, listeners, space AKs are is this okay? I yeah, I, I don't see why not. They look they look sort of modified. Um, they're not going to jam in the rain, and I bet they throw. <laughs> Ha. And, and I, I bet, bet they, you could bury them in a desert, <laughs> right? And I bet they they throw blaster bolts, not not bullets. I exactly, you know, yeah. uh, you're going to use what you got around you. They've they've actually made a big deal about using practical things and practical sets in this. Um, honestly, the thing that struck me the most about the scene is the the palette with which these guys are painted. Yeah, it's much less. Uh, like the, it's nothing like the palette for the first three episodes. No, it's really not, yeah. is it? Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit further with the space AK thing because until sure. I I don't know what they're called. They don't actually tell me what they are. No. So for now, they're space AKs, and I'm gonna go I'm gonna go a step further and say that thematically, it's perfect. It is. It's perfect. absolutely perfect. Why right. wouldn't you arm these guys with AKs? We know. We know that Tony Gilroy is drawing from armed conflicts from our own human history. Mm-hmm. And when you look at our own human history, um, what's that What's that movie, the Clint Eastwood movie, where they fire off the AK? This is the sound of the weapon of your enemy. Yes, how yeah. many, you know, how how many conflicts have we been in that the AK-47 has not been? And it, is been, it has been associated yeah. with these rebel splinter groups. Why not give them AKs? It makes perfect sense. I'd heard a statistic in the <laughs> maybe early early two thousands that the, the yep. price of a, an AK forty seven in Africa was six dollars oh, yeah. US. Cheap. So they're they're everywhere, yeah. literally everywhere. But again, just like a stormtrooper getting paid, does this not just help sell the idea of who these people are? They're disorganized. They're a small guerrilla unit. We don't even know. Like I got the impression, like they've got these two, maybe three rifles. They might actually be sharing them. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Certainly she says this... they're sleeping on rocks, right? Yes. Like, certainly yeah. that, and just kid, scraping by. Uh, Nemix. 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 Certainly, he's not a, a grizzled warrior like maybe some nope. seem to be. Um, he he probably has you know some sort of tech ability. You know, like if, if we're looking at the sort of Ocean's Eleven kind of. Oh yeah, heist, heist vibe that they're setting yeah. up. Everybody's probably yeah. got a specialty. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm, I say it several times through the course of my notes. Um, they are really, really going out of their way to build, to pull on your heartstrings with Nemec. Mm-hmm. That poor mm-hmm. kid's not gonna make it. <laughs> no, <laughs> that poor no. kid. When they say that, you, you, pl- you plug him in when anyone goes down, I'm like, oh Nemec, you are so not surviving this. It's the per- first part of any war movie. You find the sympathetic young, and you, oh, that that guy gets it. The, <laughs> look at how we meet him. He's he's sleeping on sentry. Like this right. guy's not a soldier. Right. Uh, we're gonna get a couple more of these too that just make it. And I and I'll point them out if if it's not obvious enough for you. But all right, let's get on with this. Um, the lady that we're being introduced to here. This is uh, Sinta Kaz. 
And uh, Cynthia Kaz is played by actress Varada Sethu, who uh, most recently we saw her in Jurassic World Dominion, where she played the character Shira, which uh, she kind of escorted the the original uh, characters around the uh, around the facility when they showed up, when Grant and uh, Ellie showed up. As Cassian and Vel uh, cross the narrow stone bridge over the uh, over the river, the group stares with intense scrutiny at the stranger now among them. Vel gathers everyone together, and she introduces the stranger as Clem. She says uh, that she never mentioned him before because she wasn't sure that she could get him here on time. But with a stroke of luck, Clem has been able to fight his way free, conveniently um, accounting for his shoulder wound. As Vel parrots Luthen's words about the critical redundancy, uh, Skeen says, um, it's a bit late for surprises. Mm -hmm. And with a without addressing his remark, Vel introduces him as Skeen. And she then goes around the circle, pointing out Terramin, Nemec, and Sinta. Still not addressing Skeen's concern, Vel goes on to point out that they always knew that they were short uh, a man. And Terramin asks if he can speak with her. But she deflects him with, let's get Clem settled in. Uh, with a half a smile and a sense of boyish innocence, Nemec says, good to have you, Clem. We'll take all the help we can get. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, Nemec. You might as well have a oh, red shirt Oh, buddy. He's got a red <laughs> he's got a, hat. He's got a red hat. <laughs> That's true. That's a true story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She instructs uh, Sinta to feed him and then uh, <clears throat> take a look at his arm. Terraman takes a step towards Vel at this point, trying to get her attention, and he's not happy with what's going on. But Vel asserts herself by remarking that the posts around the corral are down again, so unless you two want to be chasing animals all day, I suggest you get out there now. Um, having to assert that leadership. And I honestly wasn't very convincing. <laughs> <laughs> Ordering her people... She is trying, and surprisingly, though, that they actually go for it, that they don't press her right there, because I think if it were me, I might have. Mm. You know, I might have actually pressed her a little harder in the moment. Ordering them to uh, get at it, uh, she says they'll they'll work Clem into the program at Drill. So that's good. Um, they actually have drills that they're doing, so they are planning. And as the group breaks up, there is a very palpable tension in the air. <clears throat> back on coruscant uh cyril karn departs a starport armed with nothing more than two suitcases the port is bustling with travelers both coming and going and over the pa we can hear an announcer uh make a boarding call for uh telgordo travel service to hosnian prime <laughs> plexus and uh, euphornis major will now be departing from platforms 712 and 713 do not join the line without your boarding pass. Um, this is a really cool shot. I love this shot. Oh, man. This is the McLaren Technology Center in uh, London. Mm -hmm. um, we've been here before. We were here in, uh, in um, Captain America uh, Civil War, where uh, Tony oh, Stark brought uh, Peter Parker here. Very cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to talk about the uh, what's going on here. The Telgordo Travel Service. This is like a way back um, obscure reference. This comes back to uh, an Imperial-owned travel service 
and they were known to operate a ship called the Telgoro's Pride. And because the company was an imperial subsid- uh, subsidiary, they were not subjected to imperial checkpoint inspections. Uh, this company first mentioned in the Star Wars Game Master kit in 1991. Hosnian Prime, obviously, that's uh, the planet where the New Republic will set up their government uh, during the time of the Resistance. Um, we see it get smoked <laughs> from a couple different angles um, as the Starkiller base decides to uh, go off. And uh, Plexus, Plexus was actually more uh, less of a planet and more of a planetoid, um, but it was in the core systems, and it actually housed a uh, chapter house of the Bounty Hunters Guild. And uh, Plexus was introduced in the uh, Star Wars Galaxy Guide number 10 back in 1994. And uh, our last uh, reference in this one is uh, for Euphornus Major. This is a relatively new uh, new reference, and it was introduced in the uh, junior novel series, uh, four-book series, Servants of the Empire. Uh, that took place during the what first season of Star Wars Rebels. Hmm. So lots of things going on there. Mm-hmm. After departing the starport, uh, Cyril makes his way by train to another part of the city, uh, the cityscape, where we see him uh, board an elevator. Uh, the keypad is in English. Um, not the first time we've seen English in Star Wars. We've had English all the way back in 77. Lots of consoles had English on them. Hmm. And uh, as he keys in the, the numbers, uh, he actually punches in 091. Um, and there again is that small detail. Look at the sleeve pulled over his fingers. He's not touching the buttons, bare-fingered. Germaphobe. All right. When the elevator begins to move, it descends. It goes down several levels. And the light of day grows dimmer as it moves. Cyril stares out the window, and there's a level of dejection on his face that says he's not okay. Um, and I almost feel sympathetic for him. Mm. Exiting the lift, he makes his way to a nearby apartment complex, and uh, he puts his bags down beside a door before ringing the doorbell. When the door slides open, an older woman stares up at him. At the recognition of who it is, the woman gasps before he addresses her. Mother. With an open hand, she slaps him hard across the face before breaking into tears and embracing her son. Across the hallway, a busybody neighbor watches until Cyril's mother drives her off with a stern, What are you staring at? (laughs) And then uh, both mother and son retreat into the apartment and the door slides shut. He's just a, like, normal dude. Like, 091, and the elevator goes down. It's like, okay. And we, we already associate sort of wealth with where you live the higher up the wealthier you are yeah you know where where buildings uh are uh, um measured in hundreds of levels right and he's like under a hundred like are we talking like 91 floors off the ground off the surface of the planet that's what that's what i interpreted at like if 13 13 is way down there then 91 is you know cool a lot closer to the top but still not the top no exactly He's not under uh, not underground though. Uh, well, still I mean, fairly high up. I got the impression that he's uh, on the surface still. Like I know thirteen thirteen is is that sub level, but yeah. do they, does do we hit zero and they just start counting up again and they just don't put the negative in front of it? I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I just I got know, the at some point they 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 <clears throat> they drop like 
I think it's the Star Wars Lego game. They drop how many levels of Coruscant there are. Oh, they, okay. They, they actually, it's like 5,000 some odd. And they talk oh, about I didn't know that. Uh, peeling it back like onions. Like right. You know, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I just thought, you know, uh, 91, he's, you know, somewhere below like that, you know, especially with the light fading. Yeah. Well, back on Aldani, uh, Cinda attends to Clem's arm. Note that his wound has traveled from his elbow back up to his uh, shoulder at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she notes that it, wound. yeah, she notes that it is a blaster burn and it needs to be cleaned. Um, when Cinta moves to retrieve some supplies, Cassian pulls the blue kyber from around his neck and he shoves it into a pocket. Cinta returns with a medical instrument filled with some kind of antiseptic solution, maybe, maybe some form of bacta. I don't know. Yeah. As she begins to administer the treatment, she apologizes, uh, saying that they're trying to save on pain medication. And Cassie invisibly winces uh, when she injects his arm. In the nearby shelter, Vel meets with uh, the rest of the crew. Pointing at the other shelter where Cinta is presently treating Cassian's arm, Terraman demands to know, uh, know who he is. And uh, she offers a week, well, he comes highly recommended, and Skeen remarks, oh, so you don't know him. Well, trying to maintain some control on the situation, Vel says that she knows that they need him, adding that anything uh, more than that would be a security violation. If you can't dazzle them with brilliance, mm-hmm. then you baffle them with... Mm-hmm. All right, conceding ever so slightly, Terraman acknowledges that he can sense that Cassian has what he calls brass, um, but he's still concerned that it's too late in the game to add another person. Vel shoots back, as opposed to when? Uh, but Skeen cuts in and asks, do you trust him with our lives? And uh, she says that's her call to make. From across the shelter, sitting on a hammock, Nemec, <laughs> ever the voice of optimism in this group, remarks that he feels that Clem is committed, adding that he wants to believe. And when Skeen asks, feel what? Nemec answers with his belief in the cause um, and that when it comes right down to it, that's all that he needs to know. Mm. That might be the only thing at this point out of all the things they've put on Cassian that he doesn't have. <laughs> like he's this... probably a good shot. He's probably fair fight. He's probably an excellent pilot. He's probably very savvy and streetwise, but, but down for the cause. I doubt it at this point. He is so not, um, and I think it's eating at Vel because there, <clears throat> if you follow sort of her expression and she's really trying to like right. hold on to her poker face. Yeah. His cause is, his cause remember, is 200,000. She just told uh, Luthen, no, as soon as he said that you're paying him, right? Like they're committed. He's not. And I mean, they do, she doesn't want him there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's not down for the cause. Not, not in the slightest at this point. Um, so, and by the look on Vel's face, she is actually struggling with the knowledge that Cassian is no more than a hired gun and has no investment in their cause. Right. But when Terraman presses her, he or she blurts out, I trust him, okay? Mm. Well, I think I, more. I just of, thought, you know, just now, what's, what's to stop Cassian from trying to double cross them? Like nothing. Taking the, taking the 20 million and going, you know, like. Yeah, really. Uh, nothing that, really. I really could throw an interesting twist into this stuff. Mm-hmm. 
on Coruscant, a speeder pulls up in front of uh, Luthen's gallery, or what we will come to understand as Luthen's gallery. A young woman announces that uh, Senator Mon Mothma has arrived, adding that, uh, and she has a new driver. Luthen walks out from a back room, asking his assistant if she thinks that the driver is Chandrillan. And she says, one would think, Chandrilla being the uh, home planet of Mon Mothma, which was established in Legends way back when. As the senator and her driver enter the gallery, Luthen gr- uh, greets her with open arms and uh, makes small talk with the senator, apologizing for being late, adding that it's always when you're leaving that everyone suddenly remembers things that they're meant to bother you with. Luthen laughs quite jovially, telling her, uh, telling her, um, oh my God. <laughs> yep. Fever dreams when I was writing this. What was I trying to say here? <laughs> Read it verbatim. <laughs> I want to hear it. Luthen, Luthen laughs quite jovially, telling her to our her mind that. <laughs> Excellent, sir. I'm glad you're feeling better. I think this is the part <laughs> where he says, uh, t- where time stands still. Put your mind at, at ease or whatever. And indeed, the gallery is filled with many artifacts, which we will get to. He says that it's hard to be surrounded by this much history and not be humbled by the insignificance of our daily anxieties. Luthen reintroduces his aid as Clea, um, adding that the two of them often refer to the gallery as Coruscant's unofficial temple of patience, to which Mon Mothma replies, well, I have to start coming here more often. Dispensing with the pleasantries, Luthen gets to the matter at hand. Mon Mothma has come for a gift for her husband, to celebrate the Chandrillan custom of the Day of Days. Presumably it's a birthday? I would think. That's what I think, anyway. Luthen says that uh, he has uh, put some items aside for her, recalling that her husband has an interest in military artifacts, uh, and he begins by showing her what he describes as a Utapauan monk cudgel. He says that uh, you can find the ceremonial variety, but this is the real thing adding that it is a true treasure for the aficionado. And while Luthen entertains Mon Mothma, Clea asks her driver if she can show him anything. The driver politely refutes her, uh, her offer, saying that, oh, I, I couldn't possibly afford anything. But Clea says there's no harm in looking, adding that they just got in some terribly interesting coins. With a nod, the driver accepts the offer, and Clea leads him to another area of the gallery. And while she walks past, she shoots Mon Mothma a sideways look, a clear signal that she and Luthen can now get down to the real business at hand. With Clea's message uh, having been received, Mon Mothma says that she's trying to expand her husband Perrin's tastes beyond fighting implements, asking if Luthen has anything else that might be of interest. As Luthen leads Mon Mothma to the back room, her driver glances in their direction, but Clea distracts him with the coins that she says are 14,000 years old. Keeping up the illusion, Luthen shows her a stone carving of what he calls a two-faced divinity, depicting a sun goddess and a serpent from the overworld sharing the same mouth. How uh, poetic is that? The whole duality of, you know, the the face that we present versus the real talking at the same mouth that they these people are both right yeah 
now safely away from prying eyes, Luthen drops his voice to a mere whisper and he says to Mon Mothma, if you can't deliver, I need to know. Frustrated, she says, do you think I'm not trying? He says that uh, he never thinks that, but he needs to plan if she's not able to come through. Mon Mothma tells him the money is there, but it's getting very dangerous uh, for her to move it around because they're watching her now. Well, Luthen remarks they're watching everyone now, but Mon Mothma tells him it's different. She says that there is a new spy in the Senate every day. When she goes to the bank, everyone working there is an all-new face. Luthen questions her new driver, and looking out the window at him, at him and Kalea, she sighs that she says she feels like she's under siege. While he stands at the table looking down at the divinity, Luthen tells her that he has many mouths to feed and he can only forage for so long. Mon Mothma tells him that she thinks she has found someone that she thinks can help her. Luthen turns, asking someone who. He questions, to bring into the circle? Mon Mothma steps closer, saying she knows what she's asking, but Luthen cuts her off with a no. He says that they're vulnerable and uh, they need more funding, not more people to look out for. Um, who is she talking about? Who do we think she's talking about? Mm. Bale? I feel it's to me that's who it probably. is. Probably yeah, the obvious choice. Bale. There were other so there's a cutscene from Revenge of the Sith that actually has yes. her going to Padme's apartment um right. with a bunch of other senators, mm-hmm. um, which will come up again later. Uh one of the the um, at the dinner party when she's they're talking about the party and they say, Let's go and invite some the the Gorons. Right. The senator for that world is in that scene in the cutscene. Yes. So, I mean, possibly him or any of the people from that cutscene, but Bail Organa to me yeah, is the is the obvious one. That's right. I've heard some people say, well, maybe, you know, Leia might be serving as a junior senator at this yeah. point. Mm. If we take Rebels for Rogue, the, the rebellion is literally made up of of disconnected cells that We're not that connected yet. Don't even know they're working with one another. Uh, right. Right, uh, you know, because Ezra says there are other rebels. Yeah, like, you know, oh, yeah. he thought it was like a five-man, six-man thing against the Empire, uh, and so this is about that time when uh, rebel cells start connecting and becoming something more cohesive. That's right. Yeah, they do. Well, visibly stung by what uh, he just said, Mon Mothma says, "Don't lecture me about vulnerability." No one is more at risk than I am. Adding, uh, you think I haven't thought this through? I'd be the first one to fall. Picking up the divinity and walking towards the front of the gallery, Luthen slips back into his uh, his uh, socialite Happy act. Happy faces. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you take this on loan? And then without missing a beat, Mon Mothma follows suit with, uh, oh, may I? Um, and like, they are like the consummate actors in this particular sequence where it's like okay switch it on switch it off mm-hmm. as the two step out front luthan uh says that if perrin uh um mothma's husband doesn't love it he'd be happy to take it back turning to face her um he calls it a daring choice but i trust you'll have the courage to turn back if it should be a bit much and uh, she nods her understanding saying that uh, she appreciate she appreciates that wink wink nudge nudge Luthen then instructs Clea to wrap the divinity for her, and the two watch 
as the Imperial Senator and her driver leave. And as the speeder pulls away, Mon Mothma uncomfortably uh, opens the fringe of her top coat as she leans back in the seat, reflecting on what just took place. All right, um, Easter egg time. Luthen's gallery is a veritable treasure trove of artifacts. And uh, these are in no particular order, but I, I've pulled together <coughs> everything that I could find, um, having scrut scrutinized the sequence a few times over. Um, we get a Gungan energy shield yes. uh, leaning in the corner. We get a Wookiee battle helmet. Um, by the way, that Wookiee battle helmet is a near perfect match. I sent this to you the other day, uh, other day, Hank, for uh, Chewbacca's friend Salporin. Yes, it could be. I mean, it's it's pretty compelling unless all Wookiee helmets have that same green jewel and uh, scale pattern. I don't know, but it is definitely a Wookiee helmet. We've got uh, some Mandalorian armor. Um, I don't know if it's pure Beskar or not, but it's definitely Mandalorian armor. Well, it's high end if it's in there. Yeah, uh, for sure it is. <clears throat> Unpainted. There is a horn, uh, a Wookiee clarion, uh, like a battle horn, mm -hmm. which we saw them use in uh, Revenge of the Sith. There is the Utapau and Cudgel itself. Utapau, that's uh, the planet that uh, Obi-Wan went to, uh, basically, to get some gas. And then hung out and uh, fought General Grievous. <laughs> the, uh, and then uh, Grand the Inquisitor other... is Utapawan. That's right. Yes, yes. The Grand Inquisitor is a, is a Pawan. Um, the helmet thing. I mean, some people are saying the helmet. Some people are saying the whole suit of armor. The helmet for sure right. is uh, right out of, um, um, oh my gosh, The Force Unleashed. Star Wars, yes. The Force Unleashed. Mm -hmm. um, and it was an alternate uniform. It was a skin, uh, an alternate uniform for an alternate ending for that game. Yeah, um, unlocked when you fully turn to the dark side. Yeah, so some kind mm -hmm. of Sith helmet. But yeah, so uh, Starkiller uh, wore this at some point, possibly. But I don't think that that's the case here. It could be, maybe it is Sith armor. Um, interestingly enough, though, Luthen has two sets of this stuff. Right. He's got a helmet and a, a suit in the front of the gallery, and he's got a second one in the back. We've got, um, now we get some really interesting stuff in here. Um, we get these stone tablets, and the stone tablets look a lot like the keystone from Rebels, the yeah. keystone that was basically how to unlock the door to the world between worlds. Yes. Um, are we potentially looking at another keystone to the world between worlds? It, certainly, or a, or a copy, or something to that effect. Not yeah. Uh, the rebels timeline and where we are in this time, you know, they, that that doesn't line up. It, there, it's not the same. It can't no, be the same no, piece. Not, not at all. Um, yeah, certainly, if they're not copies, they're from a you know. I, I would think from the walls of a Jedi temple. So that would make yeah. them you know, yeah, yeah. valuable. So. Um, we have what appears to be both a Jedi and a Sith holocron on the back, uh, mm -hmm. the back shelf. Mind you, the depth on these, that they're huge. Yeah. They're huge. They um, Cause they're so far back. We also get uh, a toy like uh, Calicori. We saw the Calicori introduced to us back in uh, rebels where um, it was uh, every family, every toy like family has one. Yeah, it's kind of like the family tree. That's my favorite object out of all of these, actually. Oh, the Calicori, um, really? Uh, it, it it scumbags his alternate persona <clears throat> way up. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the things that Thrawn covets. Like, yeah, 
this has zero meaning or value to anyone except the family that except the family yeah and he's got this proudly on display as if to say i'm i'm pretending to be one of those scumbags interesting so that that reminds me of Thrawn, and then the idea of especially with the sort of the we haven't got to the carbonite block but um uh, there's other characters in star wars that are collectors and yeah uh, you mentioned earlier dr afra well that's a big question for me is where is he getting all this stuff yeah is he going out and collecting this himself she's the preeminent sort of if you were to take uh you know indiana jones and maybe gray him up uh 10 or 15 percent um and slam him in a uh, in a young lady's body certainly you get dr afra in star wars um if there's any character that she's like like it's it's probably indiana jones and this you know between thrawn and her and the era being correct like that's the circles that that uh lucine would be swimming in for sure the calicory is i think is just this sort of uh on purpose item to go this is the kind of scumbag i'm portraying interesting um and then to round it out we've got a uh respirator from the keldor species the Keldor species being the same species as uh, Jedi Master Plo Koon. Mm. Um, I don't think that this is Plo Koon's respirator, considering he died in a fireball when his ship got blown right. up. I got excited um, when I saw it in the trailer. Yeah, <laughs> and it's easy enough to do. Like, oh my God, that could be Plo Koon's thing, but eh, okay. Um, and then lastly, this is a this is a great little Easter egg. There are three blocks of carbonite um, on a on a table, and the first one. Um, undeniably that is Indiana Jones whip, um, frozen in carbonite. Um, the other two become a little more muddied. Andy, you, you took a stab at the second one and you're, I am a hundred percent that that second tablet is the idol from Raiders. The fertility idol from Raiders. And when you say that looking at the profile, I'm like, you you might actually see the hairline and yeah, yeah, yeah. So the third one then. Yeah, I heard from, uh, I guess, Screen Crush had said that they were the Shankara Stones. The Shankara Stones. So, which is a kind of a logical leap from the other two items. uh, Kind of? But I can't, I couldn't make them out at all, at all. I I do like the token, you could say it's the back end of the Crystal Skull, too, right? Well, Well, yeah. yeah. Unless you're seeing the front, you don't know. I do like the nod that it that there's an in-universe, you know, there's a there's a meta joke in-universe, Frozen and Carbonite, and then the other joke is that it, you know, Han Solo, Harrison Ford's uh, been in both franchises. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that joke as well. Uh, and Indiana R2, Jones was the uh, fever dream. Is it the, re- yeah, it's sort yeah. of paying back the, the droids appearing in the hieroglyphics. Right, right. You guys yeah. ever seen that fan fiction film? On oh, yes. Movie? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, fantastic. It's pretty fantastic to kind of tie them both in. Um, conceive now. I don't know enough about the character, Hank, so I'm going to rely on you on this one. Is this conceivably something that Doctor Afra would be into? Would she be curating these things and bringing them to him? Yeah, I could mean, she be? Yeah, that's that's her that's her role. That's her shtick. Um, and especially like, I think at this point in 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 the story, she's she's working for the Empire. Yeah. Okay. Specifically tracking down Sith artifacts for the Emperor. Well, um, so let's let's talk about that for a second because yeah. right here now, like um, those tablets are uh, uh, would be very very um, 
there are some items of interest here that I think the emperor would have, you know, would right. take interest in. Um, right. Probably nothing on this page, but um, Sith and Jedi holocrons and those stone tablets. Right. The the bigger question is why are why are these just out in in public? I and that's what leads me to the idea that I was saying, but probably reproductions of things, fakes. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, and and I mean, not even fakes to try to say, oh, this is the real thing, but uh, these are reproductions of the real thing. This is a cast of a a casting of a holocron, of, or a, right, you know, because I I don't, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe he is the antiquities dealer to the empire, but I don't think <laughs> you hide in plain sight that good, and I also yep. don't think that the the the, the tablets. And the holocrons are are something that Palpatine doesn't own himself already. Yeah. Well, he's got um, one in his throne room. By the time you get to the sky or rise of sky. So what? Right? What? What is Luthen's fixation then? Because let's let's add another element and let's go back to Luthen has a very sizable kyber crystal in his yeah. possession that he he's knows. he has said is more precious to him, and he wants it back. What is his do I say obsession? What is his obsession with Jedi artifacts? Because we're looking at two of them on screen right now. Right. What's the obsession? Is I, it just the the a better time? I remember the that there was a better time. I think it's I think it I think it's probably 90% cover. Um maybe yeah. this is who he was in life before he decided to rebel, if you will, to use that okay. term. Um certainly it's when you look at the stuff on Canto Bite, uh, if yep. we're going to take any good bits of uh, The Last Jedi, yep. um, the idea that there's an elite that aren't... Uh, if the first three episodes give us the working class, The Last Jedi gave us the what the elite are doing. The aristocracy. Right. You know, And so there's all manner of sort of debauchery and collecting and... and so this is just like a, a, a like a snippet into the world of the aristocracy. Like there, yeah. you know, these there are things of value. There are items of value, and then you know on Earth there are things that we could conceivably collect that go back five thousand years. You can have a hard time collecting things older than that. They do exist, obviously, but and so when you're you know, here's some coins that are fourteen thousand years old. Here's mm-hmm. a here's a here's a, a cudgel that's you know X number of years old, and here's a a kyber crystal that might be 20 or 25,000 years old. It's just, it's sort of indicative of that, that this is an excellent cover. He's sort of hiding in plain sight. He's rolling in these circles where the only, the uh, elite can afford to buy these things. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I don't think the specific, I think that's just cool for us. I don't think there's any sort of uh, specific reason for any one item, except I, I honestly believe the the inclusion of the Calicori is to, is to, to would define him as the type of clientele he would have. I, you know, I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna leave it. Day. I'm gonna frame it one of two. I'm gonna leave it as we we have a couple of things here. We have one. These items are fakes, and yes. that that makes them perfectly okay to be where they are. Contextually speaking, mm. the Empire doesn't care because they're not real. Mm. The other side of that is they are real. Right. And then we have a whole host of other questions about why the empire is, is 
nonchalant allowing about them, them being allowing them in public. Okay, so and I think that- I think that all it's going to come down to the reveal on who Luthen really is. Okay, so maybe they're not public though. Maybe this is a private <laughs> shop that the Empire might not even know about. You know, certainly a driver and a senator could go there if they were yeah. in the know. Yeah. But th- th- this reminds me more than any other scene in Star Wars. This reminds me of Dryden Voss's ship. Oh, yeah, of course and it this does. Is the, yeah, for this sure. Is, you know, that's, the, that's you know, relative era. It's very relative. It's not yeah. as far apart yeah, as some other points so. in Star Wars. And that is true. He's an underworld figure collecting yep. these things. Yep. Yep. You know, and, and, and Afra is an underworld figure collecting these things. He literally might be an underworld figure. Uh, maybe, maybe. Perhaps it's, you know, it could be a a, a triple cover. Well, uh, there's a lot of story left, man. (laughs) We'll put a pin in that one. We'll come back to it as we, when we find out what the real deal is. And I think we will. He he does say to Mon Mothma, I've got a lot of mouth to feed. So maybe moving high end stuff like this can afford him to do that. Uh, Maybe. Or at least on some level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he calls it a gallery. And I mean, okay, um, it's a gallery. Is he in the business of selling stuff? He must be in the business of selling because the driver's like, I can't afford anything. Well, but yeah, yet he lends her. Right. Well, yeah. And that's like a person, you know, like. I guess so. But it's it's kind of like, does the government of Canada know that there are galleries operating? Certainly. Do they have a running tally of every single no, painting in no, a you're gallery? Right, you're right. And so it it just might be that he flies enough under the radar that his cover is just you know, intact not enough. to draw enough attention. Yeah. If, okay. if, if they prove to be real. Okay. Well, yeah. like I said, we'll put a pin in that one and we'll come back to it because I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and I hope that they do explore that. All right. So, um, our uh, uh, the gallery assistant. That's a, a character, uh, Clea Markey. Now that's uh, she's played by uh, British actress Elizabeth Dulau. Um, she appeared in uh, in the Prime Video original, The Outlaws, as a character named Leslie. And then she also was in the HBO Gentleman Jack, where she played uh, Catherine Rawson. And uh, our driver, uh, the driver's name is Chloris. He's played by uh, actor Lee Ross who appeared in uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes as uh, Grey, as well as, uh, more recently, a, a, a Castle for Christmas. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, a Castle for Christmas with um, Carrie, Carrie Elwes and, uh, what's that, uh, Brooke Shields, where he played uh, Thomas. All right. Back on Aldani, the silence around camp is broken as an Imperial speeder bike uh, being ridden by an Imperial Army trooper approaches. Cassian looks on uh, quite bewildered as uh, Skeen goes out to meet uh, the speeder bike. Cinta tells him that the man is with them, and then she tells him to stay here as uh, she goes out to meet with the rest of them. Now, we can't hear what Skeen has said to the man, but we can tell by the way that he's yelling at Vel, what the hell is going on? That he's not happy uh, about the late inclusion of our new man, Clem. Um, The man protests that he and the others had no say in this, she tells him that it was always in the works the same way that she told the rest of the crew. He then asks, what else don't I know about? And she tells him that adding a man helps them, that uh, he was, he was the one uh, that said that they were sitting, uh, that they were, Oh my God, my notes are so bad. (laughs) (sighs) 
he was the one that said they were cutting it close to begin with. Right. The man counters saying that um, the operation is in just three days and asks, what were you going to do if I couldn't make it here today? Just turn up with an extra face to explain? Well, Vel tries to deflect his anger, saying that she knew that he would come through. And the man blinks repeatedly in dismay, like, what? Before telling her that uh, they haven't prepped for this. He says they don't have enough comms, but uh, our boy Nemec interjects <laughs> saying, well, we have two spares. And the trooper shouts back, that was our backup. And then Vel, she kind of shoots him down saying, Clem is our backup. Well, Terraman says, well, they have an extra uniform, but uh, the trooper is going to have to leave his belt and gloves to complete it. The man, still upset at what's happening, looks around bewildered before telling Vel that he should have been consulted. Vel calls out to uh, uh, Clem to join them, and then she introduces the man as uh, Lieutenant Gorn, saying that uh, he's their contact at the garrison. Gorn uh, remarks, wounded on top of it, and uh, Clem steps up and says, on top of what? And Gorn, looking him straight in the eye, says, on top of being someone whom I've never met, who suddenly got my neck in their hands, and uh, Cassian just stares at Gorn and says, I know the feeling. Um, great line, by the way. Yeah. Vel snaps, are we done? And uh, Gorn snaps back, who is he? She says, he's Clem. He's here, and that's all that matters. While Terramin, who's been leaning on a nearby tree, says, we're wasting daylight. Let's get on with it. Breaking the tension in the moment, he gestures to Cassian to go and give Nemec a hand. Well, with Cassian now no longer separating Vel from Gorn, he says, uh, she says, why are there so many patrols in the Stone Canyon? And Gorn tells her that there is an Imperial engineer coming from Coruscant and that they have been mapping the old trails for him, but that will stop tomorrow because he'll be pushing all the traffic to the lowlands. Vel asks him, well, how long do we have you for? And Gorn tells her that he has a midnight inspection. Um, the idea that an Imperial engineer is coming out here, is that, is there a subplot there that we actually should care about or no? Maybe well, it's just, it's kind of just world building. It's a layer, but I don't, I don't know that it's that significant. Like it could be a civil engineer who's like, Hey, how to, we're going to put roads here. Like just something that simple. I mean, yeah. I mean, they, they're, they, they've got to, you know, they're itemizing everything. They're, they're collecting yeah. everyone's DNA ostensibly. Uh, data codes and chips and right things right like right that. So, yeah. okay well our man uh, lieutenant gorn that's uh uh sul rimi uh he appeared in the show manhunt where he played uh, ds neville hilton as well as uh, other tons and tons of other british film and television roles again this cast is so uh laden with brits i just i don't recognize a lot of them mm-hmm <laughs> Back on Coruscant, Mon Mothma arrives home to find Perrin, setting the table for a very particular dinner party. When she asks, what's all this? He tells her that it's uh, dinner for the governor. And she says, what governor? Uh, And he says, the governor of Hannah, adding my regimental mate, that governor? Um, Hannah is possibly, it could be a reference to uh, Hannah City, um, but that doesn't make a lot of sense when you consider that governorships generally apply to entire planets. Right. 
Um, but Hannah City is the capital uh, city of of Chandrilla, their home planet. So I don't know if that's meant to to be a reflection of that or not. Caught off guard, Mon Mothma asks, "Is that tonight?" And Perrin remarks that it's on her calendar, saying that he added it a month ago after they discussed it. Uh, but she has a different recollection, saying that uh, he wore her down on it. Perrin remarks, "I didn't think anyone could do that." Thinking he's uh, making fun of her, uh, she says, are you enjoying this? He says no, that he's just looking forward to seeing some old friends. She then asks him who else is coming, and uh, he points to a pad on the table, telling her that the seating chart is on it. Looking at the display, she begins to read the names, and two of them in particular grabbing her attention. Ars Dangor and Sly Moore from the Vizier's mm-hmm. private chamber. Perrin asks her if that's a problem. Exasperated, she says, you can't be serious. These people hate me. They spend every day trying to undo anything I've touched. Perrin, not overly concerned, says, well, perhaps tomorrow they'll think twice. Well, just then a servant enters the room with more items for the table layout, and Mon Mothma hastily dismisses her. Turning back to her husband, she tells him that she or he shouldn't have invited these people without first making sure that she was aware. Now, under fire from his wife, he nonchalantly says, well, it's a bit late to cancel. Then he turns sarcastic and uh, and bows uh, jokingly as he says, but at your pleasure. She laughs at him and she says, well played, Perrin, adding that she's not being serious and just not to seat them near her. He says that yeah, he's taking care of that, adding that he's placed her at the boring end of the table, remarking that uh, these people are fun. And at that, Mon Mothma, she quips, oh, are they? We should find some Gorman guests for the night and see how amused they are, adding that uh, his fun friends just cut off their shipping lanes the day before, and she asks him if he has any idea how many of them will starve, uh, mockingly adding that maybe they can laugh about it over the third course of their dinner tonight. Uh, Gorman, that's another uh, Legends reference. Uh, Legends Planet made its way into the new canon. It was first mentioned in the uh, Rebel Alliance uh, source book in 1990. Uh, and in the new canon, it uh, it's the site of a massacre led by uh, one Captain Wilhuff Tarkin in 18 BBY, where he uh, lands a spaceship on a bunch of people that wouldn't get out of his way. Perrin suggests, yeah, Perrin suggests that maybe uh, she take a rest and uh, he starts uh, wagging and wagging her finger at him. She sternly says, if you make me pay attention, I will. And you won't be happy. Gathering her top coat from the chair uh, that it was resting on, she tells Perrin, don't do this again. And as she walks away, Perrin calls out, there's a rumor that you brought me a present. And without even looking back, she says, it's going back, craning his (laughs) neck to see his wife. He jibes, must everything be so boring and sad? Um, we're all married people here. Mm-hmm. Um, is this the definition of a healthy relationship? <laughs> Are these two people like any further apart? No, it's true. Probably I mean, they, I mean they, they quit good. They seem to have an understanding, but certainly they're, they're, they're you know, I get the impression that he's one of the regional governors that the emperor or well i guess tarkin talked about in the new hope maybe um 
you know, he could be he could very well end up being that so having said which this crazy powerful family and a lot of times those relationships are are out of necessity to to move one cog or the other up the pole right um, probably not about love probably about station and you know she but she does she does play her hand a little bit because she she talks about essentially human rights you know i yep. the specifics but i mean it's it's people starving to death and yep. if she didn't trust him on some level she might not ever show that level of concern sort of you know that being the rebel alliance leader level of concern you know many bothans died to bring us this message so on some yep. level yep. i think she definitely trusts him uh even if he does things that you know I think we're, I think that this scene is like, you know, if their marriage is a, is a bottle of champagne, um, the bottle has been shook a lot. (laughs) And this scene is like the cork is about to, is about to fly off. Like, I think that their relationship has eroded over the course and, and quite likely because of her political career, he's like my old regimental mate. Oh, so he's ex-military. So he's got a, you know, a particular outlook, which probably doesn't exactly, you know, jive with career politician. And maybe that her, her role as a politician has been the wedge between them. How they got there is kind of irrelevant, but I think they're at the point now where he's just, you know, not like her position hasn't afforded them some uh, niceties um, as a Senator. And I think he's, he's like, Oh, I'm totally in that now. Like, I talked about Luthen being a, a Coruscant socialite, but Perrin really is. Like, he's the one planning for the dinner party, not her. I lost you. You lost me. Oh, you're, you're back. You were doing the robot quite badly oh, there. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. You were squelching right. out, but you're okay, okay now. All right. I think Perrin is the is the socialite, really. I mean, I talked I talked about Luthen being like he dresses like a socialite, yeah. But Perrin Perrin doesn't play the role. That's what he is. No, absolutely it's a genuine so, article. Yeah, yeah that's, he's that's what Luthen's trying to be or right. pass off as. I yeah. think Perrin using his wife's uh, political privilege to gain. Uh, again, talking about ambitions. I think Perrin has ambitions to be something more than he is than just the senator's husband. Mm-hmm. Well, he says something about being co co regent with uh, this Hannah person. So I I actually thought he might have been a governor. Oh, I didn't get that at all. Yeah, he says. What does he say? Uh, co. Uh, what is it? it says um. She just says who's coming to dinner, and he says uh, the governor, the governor of Hannah. Um, my regimental mate. That my regimental mate. So that yeah, like, that like he's like the assistant governor or the like vice president. Oh, the... I took it as the two of them served in the military together before he became the governor. Oh well, regimental mate, maybe. Yeah, regiment. Yeah. I could be wrong. Again, um, are we going to see this dinner party? Do you think maybe. we're going to see the dinner party? I kind of hope we do. Yeah, because cool. be I think fireworks. that'll be cool. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially with the legend stuff about Sl- Sly Moore being like possibly well, the, the mother yeah. of, of the grandmother of of Ray. You know. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's let's talk about that for a second because those those names come up. Um, both Sly Moore, uh, 
and Ars Dengor, when you talk about like um, degrees of separation from the Emperor, um, one, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. it's one degree of separation from the Emperor, yeah. Yeah. and that's very, very dangerous for Mon Mothma. <laughs> like, really, really dangerous. Yeah, literally at the opera. <laughs> <coughs> Ars Dengor, uh, the 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 weird looking dude on the bottom, uh, that's uh, canonically been identified as Ars Dengor. He is the senior advisor uh to palpatine mm-hmm. sly Moore, as you say uh attended the opera with him she was also on the dais with uh Masameda when uh, the emperor gave his uh, uh i guess his uh throne speech <laughs> right Masameda being the vizier that he refers the to the vizier then. absolutely yeah. um so sly Moore, uh officially her position is a senior administrative aide and chief of staff to emperor palpatine Mm. she's also a force sensitive who has uh used her force powers to persuade political rivals to reveal their secrets Hmm. she's one of the few people that knew but she's one of the few people who knew that uh palpatine was a sith lord from the beginning right um, and he does say that they're from the vizier's, uh, the vizier's private chamber. The vizier, um, of course, uh, at this point is still Masamita, the vizier, also known as the grand vizier, who is the head of the imperial ruling council and is the intermediary between high ranking politicians, military officers and the emperor. So we are one degree of separation away from Palpatine at this dinner party. And that's why I'm like, I, I would love to see that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it speaks to the old sort of uh, holding on to a bit of the past, uh, especially in light of the anti-alien sort of xenophobia that we get from the Empire. Yep. Two two aliens would be so high. Right. So uh, Perrin, Perrin Firtha, uh, not, uh, I guess that's their last name, Firtha, Perrin Firtha, played by Alistair McKenzie, who appeared in The Crown as uh, Richard Elliard. Um, again, another uh, British stalwart who's been in a, a million things that I have no idea <laughs> about. Back on uh, Aldani, the crew, which now includes Clem, uh, are gather around a scale model, uh, a scale model of the Imperial garrison that they plan to hit. Vel goes over the lay of the land, and she points out how the Empire built the garrison in a region known locally as Akhti Amach, the Valley of Caves, and she calls it a sacred valley. She says that the Empire uh, came in 13 years ago and liberated an existing airbase at Alkenzi, uh, an airbase 50 clicks west of the garrison. They were using clicks again. Mm-hmm. She goes on to say that the Empire quickly discovered unique storage possibilities of the caverns within the valley and then claimed the land in the name of the emperor and promptly dammed up the Nasmaklain, a sacred river. Vel calls the Aldani garrison a depot for supplies, weapons, and the payroll for the entire sector. She points out the locations of an observation tower, um, along with sentry defense emplacements, adding that they are all to protect the runway opening at the bottom of the structure. Vel goes to remove a piece of the model, and our boy Nemec jumps in there with his boyish innocence. Oh no, I'll get that, saying that it's fragile and that the rain gets into the glue. Uh, 
<laughs> and for the what the third time like oh nemec you are so like this guy is so gr- in in the military we'd say this guy is so green he still smells like supply like they just they just issued him he's so not gonna make it <laughs> As Cassian looks on, Vel points out that the runway continues underground uh, to a flight deck where a single uh, Max 7 Rono freighter uh, sits waiting. Pulling out the model of the freighter, which happens to be carved from a block of wood, uh, they pass it over to Cassian. And uh, Terraman says, Vel said you could fly. Uh, With the model in hand, Cassian remarks that it's a box freighter and says, it's not really flying, but yeah. Vel then points to a room behind the flight deck, calling it a vault, and says that's where they'll be taking crates of payroll credits from uh, before transferring them onto the freighter and escaping out the runway tunnel. Cassian looks at her like she's crazy, uh, retorting, escaping in a Rono? Dead seriously, uh, Vel looks at him and she nods her head with a, yeah. Cassian scoffs, saying those were TIE fighters we saw on the way in. And he says that even with the airbase being 50 clicks away, the fighters would be on them in minutes. Uh, Terraman piping up with uh, nine minutes. We've timed it. Cassian chuckles. Okay, well, then you'll be lucky to make the horizon. Handing the ship uh, model back to Vel, he calls it a suicide run. Now grinning, Vel remarks, exactly. As Terraman adds, that's why they only keep a 40-man regiment in the garrison. Cassian remarks, because they know no one is stupid enough to try it. Skeen, who's remained quiet up till now, says, uh, no one but us. Uh, Vel points to one of the features on the model. It's a three-limbed stone structure along the dried-up riverbed. She calls the stone Nasmabrani, calling it a temple, or uh, what's left of one, anyway. Uh, I just want to point this out now. I said Mm -hmm. this earlier in our chat. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that thing not look like the the seeing stone that Grogu sat on? A little bit. Yeah, the thing on Tython. I, yeah, I'm curious absolutely. to know. Maybe mystics in the in the hills. Is that another uh, word for force user? Awesome. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah, they said it was a sacred valley. They did exactly, and I mean, to some cultures, I'm sure the force would be like magic, sacred religion. Yeah, all that stuff. Uh, she then turns the floor over to uh, Lieutenant Gorn to complete the story, as it were, uh, and how it relates to the structure. He explains that once every three years, for as long as anyone can remember, that thousands of Aldani would gather in the valley for a celestial event that they called the Makani Bredani, or what's called the Eye of Aldani. He says that the people would travel for weeks just to witness this event on the sacred ground where the temple is. And Cassian says, what to see what? Gordon tells him, uh, imagine 50 meteor showers all at once, except they appear like a curtain being pulled across the sky until the eye, the window of the galaxy, forms over the horizon. Cassian, not sure that he believes uh, what, what he's hearing, asks Gorn, and you've seen this? And Gorn tells him that he's been stationed here for like seven years. He's actually seen it twice. He goes on to say that uh, with everyone having been relocated, it's not the same as it used to be, but when you see it, it's not something that you'll forget. And Cassian remarks, uh, every three years, and Nemec jumps in with to a thousandth of a second. And it's not really a meteor shower. Um, besides his boyish charms, it would seem that Nemec has a thing for astronomy because 
Uh, he explains that the phenomenon is actually a recurrent band of crystallized, noculescent micro densities. Essentially, it's a belt. That's your techno babble, by the way. Yes. <laughs> Essentially, a belt consisting of billions of small, very heavy, and unstable crystals. That as the planet passes through the belt, the crystals swarm the atmosphere where they become heated and eventually explode. Adding that uh, from the ground, it is a thing of beauty, but in the sky, it is chaos. Enthusiastically, Nemec calls, uh, tells Cassian that they have calculated a route that gets them out just before the eye closes. So they are basically going to fly through this phenomenon. Um, that could be interesting. Taking the floor again, Vel looks at Cassian, telling him that uh, this event happens in three days' time. Uh, astounded at what he's just been told, Cassian nods while he says, so that's your cover with a bit of a chuckle. And Vel plainly says, yeah, it gets them both in and out. And if they can beat the clock, the Empire won't even know what happened. She concludes the briefing by telling him that uh, he is a lot to learn in a very short time. And uh, the only thing she and the rest of her crew need to know is if he's in all the way. Uh, looking around, uh, Cassian offers a simple, let's get to it. Back at the central office, Blevin and Dedra wait in the meeting room for Major Partagaz. And two, the two of them stare at each other like two people playing chess. The door whooshes open and the Major barks out, speak, as he enters the room. Uh, and it's Blevin who goes first by telling him that Dedra is demanding the raw data on the Ferrex incident. And Dedra is quick to counter, citing that the Starpath unit recovered at the scene was traced to a theft at an airbase under her jurisdiction. Taking a cheap shot, Blevin asserts that Dedra is overreaching to increase the size of her portfolio, adding that she should spend more time on the security of her bases and less furthering her career. Wanting to hear her response, Partagaz addresses her by name. Lieutenant Miro. Continuing, Daedra says that the stolen unit has great value, particularly to the rebels, and that tracing its theft might expose other activity in her sector. Well, Partagaz isn't really phased by what she's saying, and he shakes his head and asserts that, well, people also take things for money. He asks her if it's worth creating uh, this much intra-office um, intra friction over what seems like a robbery gone awry. Well, Dedra digs in as she says that she thinks that the theft is part of an ongoing effort to steal proprietary imperial equipment in anticipation of an organized rebellion, adding that she has three other similar case files, and she believes that they are indicative of a pattern. Partagaz, being a man of few words, questions your feeling, and Dedra responds that she's seeing signs of coordinated activity over a number of sectors. When the Major asks what activity, she says, similar items of interest, repeated methods, adding her gut instinct. Turning to face uh, to face her, Major Partagaz remarks that Daedra came to this office from enforcement. But here, they only act on vetted and verified information. He tells her then to alert him when it develops into something more definite, but until then, she is to confine her future activities to her own sector. He turns to Blevin and dismisses him, and as Blevin leaves, uh, he lingers just long enough for Dedra to see the sneer on his face, having just defeated his opponent. Now, with just the two of them in the meeting room, 
Major Partagaz addresses Dedra once more. He says, you have two sectors to supervise. Eleven is handling six. He concedes that uh, he's a challenge to work with, but at the same time, his quarterly reports are in and yours are not. And here we are wasting valuable time on what he thinks is a non-issue. He tells Dedra that there is a high bar for her performance, and it may even be unfair, but it is senseless to ignore and potentially the foundation of a uniquely superior career. He adds that she's supposed to be more competent and tucked away, saying that is why she is here. He concludes their meeting on a positive note, remarking that he was impressed with her detention numbers uh, from Sev Talk, that they were far above the quota, and he may be pushing more work like that her way before snapping, we're done, and walking out of the room. Yeah, uh, the diversity hire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it also reminds me of the conversation between uh, Karn and, and his super superior in the very first episode. Oh, with Hein. Uh, yeah, it's very similar, uh, sort of tonally. This whole, uh, yeah, and and the whole ambition thing. Um, I think that uh, there's a there is a parallel between Karn and Dedra that they are both. She's coming from enforcement, so she's coming from the place where Karn was just working. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that she's got a different perspective than than Blevin, who probably like the like the major said, he has a, a traditional outlook of the office and how they work. He doesn't have that same experience. And I think this is why maybe there's a chance that um, Dedra and Cyril Karn may end up somehow working together. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense in light of this scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, Cutting back to uh, the Aldani camp, the crew now sit around a fire uh, taking in a meal. Terraman hands Cassian uh, a tablet asking him if he knows how to use it. And uh, he nods that he does. And so um, um, they start flipping through it, uh, the the information that's loaded on it. There are the specs for the Rono Freighter, as well as a, a detailed map of the garrison and an Aldani phrase book. Cassian takes the, uh, uh, the pad um, as everyone stares at him in silence. And looking at Terraman, he's like, uh, can I eat my food? And then uh, Vel speaking up says, uh, you'll eat. You'll let, uh, you'll let your, your, oh my God. You'll let, um, wow. I can't even tell you what her name is. Let Cinta check your bandage and you'll have learned all of that by morning. And then uh, picking up one of the space AKs, uh, she says she'll take the first watch and uh, she gets up from the fire, uh, leaving Cassian and the rest of the group in absolute silence. Cut to black. I found this um, last screen to be very yep. interesting because he's introducing yet another Star Wars language. Another language here. But we're missing the first five characters of it. So we just don't know. Um, now, is this the, this is the Aurebesh to whatever it is? The Aurebesh to Aldani. Interesting. Yeah. Did you try to, to go at whatever some of the phrases were? I did not. I was going to get cross-eyed. At <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. Uh, good for you, though, for pulling that out of there, because I definitely, I did not get uh, any of that. Uh, Rono Box Freighter. That's awesome. Yeah. So there you go, guys. Uh, that's um, episode. Sorry, go ahead, Andy. Eh, no, just uh, 
random intel on what they're about to do, right? Like, and it gives you some manufacturer details. On uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. So awesome. episode four, Aldani. Um, this is the one that I think really pushes the story forward. We're actually we're moving now. Um, we're Absolutely. actually going places. We're doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, more questions asked in this one. Uh, I think uh, lots more and pertinent questions too. I mean, the big one: Who is Luthen? Yeah. <laughs> who yeah. is Luthen? I really want to see what's going to happen at this dinner party. Yeah. Um, and not to mention the uh, the the matter at hand of we're going to knock off an imperial garrison. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Very soon. Probably. Guys. Probably this week. <coughs> Um, Fantastic thoughts. Thoughts on where we're going for the next one? Um, Off world, yeah, sort of. Basically, that. Um, I think you might see uh, Karn, you know, circle whichever camp, sort of, sort of lean towards whatever you know, whether Dietra seeks him out, and then maybe they become allies, or whether he seeks out another path. Uh, certainly, we're going to address that. Yeah, um, we might see the dinner party next episode. And we might see the, uh, you know, the beginning of the heist. I think that's, yeah, I would love, I would love to see all of that. Yeah. Um, one other thing before we get going, I want to, I just want to point out, we just had uh, Hasbro PulseCon over the weekend mm-hmm. where we got a bunch of reveals, including, and I didn't, I didn't put an image in this. They showed off uh, figures for both Cassian. Now we've seen that figure already, that's but right. they showed off a, a figure for Bix. And it's Bix in an in an outfit that we've not seen her in yet. Yeah. Which yeah, tells yeah. me we're gonna go back, we're going back to Ferrix at some point, whether it's in a flashback or he's gonna he will go back there at some point. Right, so exactly. Um, I can't see them giving us those characters and then like for three episodes letting us get to know them and where they stand with him. Yeah, and then just, just to throw them away. Them. No, you're there's, right. I, there's more elements of your rebellion. Yeah, yeah. If, yeah. If we're 12 episodes to the season and we've just finished the fourth one, we've just finished the first act. The first act, yeah, yeah. More to follow, for sure. Yeah, so this week, uh, episode five, I don't know I don't know what the title is yet. I haven't looked ahead to see. I've been very good at staying away from anything on this, by the way. <laughs> um, not, not seeing what other people are doing or saying until after I've watched it. So um, that will continue. Uh, hopefully we'll be back to a somewhat of a more regular schedule this week. Um, it's now uh, Monday, the 3rd of October. So we'll get a, a day to go. Well, just two days from now, we'll get uh, episode five and we'll be back Ooh. at it again for our, our next episode of uh, Fandor. do go and check out uh, the relevant uh, videos that pertain to this one. Go back and have a look at uh, if you're, if you want to know more about Kyber crystals, we have a very in-depth video on, uh, on uh, chasing kyber you can find that one and if you want to know more about the dt12 blaster pistol we've got a whole or bunch any of, that. of the other blasters or any of the, yes as we are adding to that uh playlist to, as an ongoing list thing. yeah exactly um looks like we lost hank again i don't know if his phone died or uh, if his connection just mm-hmm. uh decided to say uh we're done but uh, that's a good time that's a good way to uh say thanks for being with it's us a, guys and a uh, lot to unpack there really is. I would love to sit here and talk for hours and hours and hours and hours about it, but we I've already taken up more time than I probably should have. Um, and I'm still sick. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to go and take some medication, try and have something to eat and uh, put myself to bed. But I'll be back, as will the rest of us, 
um, whether we're all together again or I don't know what it's going to look like next week, but we will be back. Uh, until then, guys, thanks for watching. Thanks for hanging out with us. Um, like and subscribe. Leave us a comment, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Bye for now, guys.